0: <laughs> Welcome
1: to Week in Horror.
0: All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up.
1: The podcast that deep dives all the films you love. You gotta be fucking kidding. The week they dropped in horror history. We all go a little mad sometimes. With your horror hosts, here. JL. When a shirtless M. Elliott with no mustache takes out a, an alligator with a uh, with an oar, that's the kind of movie I'm looking. For. Eugene. And
2: we're just casually just like, yeah, so that's probably the best way to go light someone on fire with Alex. It would not be an original lineup if I didn't have fucking technical difficulties. <laughs> Johnny O. Now,
1: it's
0: not an amiable. Or where is it is, Mammyville. And Aaron. They, they got manure to work with and nothing grew from it. <laughs>
1: News, trailers, trivia, special guests, and more. You're going to need a bigger boat. Live show every Wednesday, 7 p.m. central at youtube.com slash week in horror. Welcome to prime time, bitch. And wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: One by one, we will take you.
1: Week in horror. <laughs> Stay Scared. (laughs) Welcome, welcome, horror fans. It is Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. That means it is time for another episode of the Week in Horror Podcast. The only podcast that's doing this because you were home. And if you, dear horror fanatic, are listening to us at the top of the week, remember, we do this live every Wednesday here on YouTube. You can join us here in the live chat. Come hang out with us. This week, we are covering select horror films released December 18th through December 24th. Thank you all so much for joining us. I am JL, and with me tonight are Aaron and Alex. I got both A's tonight. (laughs) 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 You're muted, Alex.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I always like sign to people when they're on mute they can hear me and i can't forget (laughs) Uh,
2: what's up you twisted
0: motherfuckers
2: not much not much but
1: it's been a good week been an interesting week just you know it, it it bothered it's like it's crazy that we have that we are just rocketing through december this quickly that the month is almost over and that's this just the kind of phenomena of having a weekly show is we wind up just tearing through a month so fast and you know prepping every week and doing all the work keeps you busy and so the you know time just flies by and already the show that we're uh, this show that we're recording right now is going to go live on the 18th and then we got like one more show this is like the end of the year so it's you know it's it's crazy.
2: That's, I skipped yeah. half the month already. I just came back from uh, having the big the big C. So I took took about a week and a half off just because I fucking felt like it. <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> Round two of uh, the vid, man. That was rough. But how's the
1: Things going good. <laughs> everything's no, just, everything's good. It wasn't so bad. That. It
2: wasn't so bad the second time. It, it was kind of like a three day, you know, blah. But it was it was being separated from the family because I, I just I, my wife goes down with it, the whole house goes down with the four kids. So it was the the separation was the worst part of the whole thing. Uh, but feeling better, getting getting back to normal. It's uh, just dealing with the fatigue. But, Yeah, You
1: see, see that's wild because you said the big C. And typically, people say the big C. They're talking about you know.
2: Yeah, yeah. I realized mean, that right after I said it, and uh, you can't really take that back. Couldn't put the toothpaste back in the tube on that <laughs> one. So. Rolled with, Roll with it.
1: Well, we're glad yeah. everybody is feeling better. How about you, Aaron? How are you hanging in there? Are you now now bald. For those who are not who can't who are not watching the live stream. Aaron has shaved off his glorious pink locks, so he has gone full biker mode.
0: Can I say though yeah. it's good? I got tired. Well, that's the funny thing is, like, 90% of my life, my hair has been this short. I didn't even dye it until, like, right before I started coming on live streams because of the, you know, the um, quarantine. I was just something to do different. I didn't have to worry about work. So I started doing that and then um, stuck with it until now. And then I've gotten... Because I've gotten sick left and right. I haven't had, you know, the evilness, but I've had, like, two upper respiratory infections, a stomach bug that just beat the hell out of me, a wicked sinus infection I had to get antibiotics for. And he's like, you know, it was hard being without the family. And I'm like... I wish my family would have gone the hell away. Like, yeah, I needed, I needed some time to just chill by myself and recover. And thankfully, my wife was supportive and she helped out a lot. But like, the kids, when you're sitting there and you're running a fever, and they're like, "Dad, Dad, Dad, wake up, wake up, wake up!" Can I have a cookie? I'm like, "Go get the damn cookie and leave me alone. I don't care if it's breakfast."
2: You know what? Leave me. A, you know what? Give me a cookie too, and then leave me alone. <laughs>
1: Oh, there's cake in the fridge. It has eggs and flour and wheat. It has everything you need. Just go get that. Leave me me alone. Go for it. Uh, Well, I'm glad everybody's feeling better. It's awesome to uh, to have uh, Alex. Alex and Aaron haven't been on a show together in a minute, so it's going to be a lot of fun. It's
2: been a while. Good to see you. And, of course...
1: We got a bunch of stuff we're going to cover tonight, and uh, some interesting movies to dive into. I think some really good choices that we have coming in towards the end of the week. And uh, but first and foremost, let's get this banner up. Bam! That's our there's our Patreon banner. All those special individuals that help us to make the show amazing. And let's see who is in the live chat. Say hi to our audience before we dive in. Travis Brown is here. Usually he's, uh, he's typically the first one in the uh, first one in the room. But good to see you, Travis. Thanks so much for being here, Buzz. good evening, horror freaks and geeks. It's good to see you, bud. Haley Taylor, the psychotic banshee, is also here. Says hello. Good to see you, Haley. There's Aaron Reese keeping it uh, real in the live chat. Rodent OS name. Gabba Gabba to you. Says happy Wednesday. Good to see you, Rodent. Thanks so much <laughs> for being here, bud. Oh, let me see here. Um, I see that Haley said, uh, Haley got her flu shot recently. Apparently, it kicked her ass. But she also said that. Oh no! I heart dog said. Oh, oh god, a tarantula movie! And I heart dogs chat. Uh, one of our big supporters. Thanks so much! I heart dog says. Oh god, a tarantula movie. No way in hell. Apparently, he is uh, terrified of spiders. Truly terrified of tarantulas. And Haley says, um, what was it Haley came back with and oh that it's not spiders, it's ants to figure out. So, but there's actually a connection to the movie Them, which we'll probably be chatting about here because Them has giant ants in it. But yeah, we're gonna get we're gonna dive into it. I see DeNova28 is here, another one of our amazing patrons. Good to see you, DeNova. It says, hello, everyone. Hope you all are having a good week so far. We are. Thank you, sir. Sarcasm as well is here. It says, good evening, fiends. Good to see you, Sarcasm. And Sonia Garlic is here. Good to see you, Sonia. And I see Gosh of Heckfire is in the house. This is good evening, young lads. Good evening, good sir. Yep, we got the A-list crew tonight angel rivera is here so good evening everybody and i'm glad that you got your uh your new gear in the uh in the mail teespring has just been dragging its ass as of late so hopefully those are still going out and uh getting there quick and you're right sony garlic the year has gone by so fast but you know we'll say we're all 2023 is on the horizon so we'll you know it's a brand new year and of course brand new year for all of y'all and of course all of us here at week and horror we have so many cool things coming in 2023 it's 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 kind of like it's like it's taking forever to get there, but it will be here before we know it. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, Sir Little Wolf is here. Good to see you, Sir Little Wolf. And Casey Cooper as well. Says well met. Good to see you. Peter Nottle is in the house. Thank you so much for being here. As well as Cindy Johnson is here. Good to see you, Cindy. And let me see it. And Joshua Lee is here. Good to see you, Joshua Lee. Thanks so much for being here, all. I don't think I missed anyone. I think I got everybody. I'm usually really good at it. And I try to catch it early You know, before we get a whole bunch of people in here. All right, so, all kinds of good stuff. So first and foremost up, I got to ask, I want to, uh, you know, check with my, uh, let's see, I got to check with my, my co-host here. Do y'all have any plans for the holidays? Are y'all doing anything? Suffering. Are y'all,
0: huh? Lots of suffering. <laughs> uh-uh, no, we'll do, we'll do some <laughs> Christmas Day with the here. family as long as my body's up to it, like, but, like, The thing kills me, so I love Halloween season. And I hate Halloween night because i got to take kids out trick-or-treating. You're always debating throwing an elbow to a (laughs) 12-year-old. I love Christmas, but I hate every bit leading up to it. Because people are like a month and a half of being jerks to each other. And all of a sudden, they're like, love and peace towards men. And it's like... I'm glad you believe in forgiveness, because I'm holding this grudge till next year.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. What about you, Alex? You do anything for the holidays?
2: We will be traveling a thousand miles by car. Ooh. With multiple children Ooh. through the snow into a winter wonderland for for a couple of days, and then turn around and do it again. So, yeah.
1: Casey cooper says my god jail that beard it's alive yeah apparently it is a a tribble came and nested on my face but i'm loving it because i'm not i'm not i haven't touched it i only i only trim the mustache because the mustache gets in my mouth when i eat so i have to keep the mustache trimmed but otherwise i'm not touching it i'm just letting it go um and just seeing what kind of what it turns into i'm kind of digging it I, i like it so
0: beard thulu (laughs)
1: when it gets wet it does that it comes out very tentacly oh yeah it goes
0: off into little strands (laughs) mine will do that and I have to take and like make sure to pull it back down sharp otherwise when it dries it just starts moving towards my ears (laughs) absolutely oh oh raven dark star said
1: i miss Ra- i miss raven dark star but good to see you raven dark star thank you so much for being here but aaron joshua lee says aaron does new year's grudges in aaron does new year's grudges instead of resolutions
0: <laughs> probably better for the world if i were jewish and we had a yearly day of forgiveness that i could just like i don't know i'd probably have to hike out in the middle of the desert and hang by hooks to atone for my year but <laughs> other than that. awesome
1: well, uh, here, here at uh, here at kind of like the homestead, um, we're we're not doing any traveling, uh, just you know, because there's really no, nowhere to travel to. So we're gonna hang out uh, pr- pr- predominantly here with the in laws, and just kind of you know me and my, my wife's family. So we're just gonna be chilling here because traveling where we have to travel is thousands of miles away to see anybody, and you know at this time it's oh <laughs> I'll, I'll get to that in a second. So, but it's just it's it's such a pain, and with the weather, and of course with you know the the log alerty nastiness that's out there, it's just safer to be here in kind of like the rural area we are, and just hang out with family, and that's pretty much it. Where we're all kind of just by virtue of where we live, we're all secluded anyway, so there's really no point in going out there. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a quiet Christmas this year. Uh, let me see. So wrote in a last name asked me, JL, you haven't touched any green meteors recently, have I? <laughs> And Sir Little Wolf said, "The lonely death of J.L. Warren." So I love this creep show <laughs> reference. Uh, although I wouldn't be like I wouldn't be like putting my hands on the meteor just yet. Meteor your shit <laughs> or putting it in my mouth. So that's one thing. Um, don't, don't but yeah, mouth, I, I love. I
0: love this the bomb reference. is awesome. My beard is so <laughs> so soft, but so straight. That's that
1: J.L. Luck, always in, always bad. <laughs> <laughs> i fucking love that movie i love it, it probably his best performance ever all right and before we uh get into our movies tonight i did want to poll. i want kind of want to ask y'all and i also want to ask the live chat it's christmas time obviously it is the holidays and this this is the uh the week that this airs the finally will be christmas eve so i kind of am curious from the live chat and of course let us know down in the comments below what is your favorite Christmas horror film. The one that you kind of go to. Like every Halloween, I go to Trick-or-Treat. Trick-or-Treat is my 100% favorite Halloween film. And so, but every holiday has got to go. And even Thanksgiving has Killing. So, but at Christmas, there are so many. Because one of the beautiful things about the horror genre is it takes lovely, warm, and family-friendly things and turns them into absolutely terrible, atrocious, horrible things. And so... Yeah, what is your favorite Christmas horror movie, your kind of go-to whenever the season arrives? What about y'all? What y'all's favorite?
2: Um, I'm going to have to go with The Griswold's Family Vacation.
1: As a horror movie?
2: Yeah, because the 1st of December it starts playing in my house and it does not stop until the end of December. <laughs>
1: <sighs> so, uh, so National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm just kidding. You, you I don't know. Randy with, um... Quaid is pretty terrifying <laughs> in that movie. <laughs> uh, <no, no>. full <laughs> <God. laughs> So
2: uh, you kind of nailed it with trick or treat. But uh, shit, I, I don't. Krampus was pretty good. I want to say recently Krampus has been kind of my go-to.
1: Um, yes. Angel Rivera. Yes. Gremlins does count. Gremlins is a Christmas horror film. And Nightmare Before Christmas also counts as well. Because that is also, because that's set at Christmas time. Um, let me see. So we got some, we got some Night Before Christmas love. We got some, we got a lot of Gremlins love. Obviously, Joe Little Wolf says Krampus as well. Um, (laughs) save the neck for me, Clark. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Oh, he's yakking on a bone. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, so my favorite, my favorite uh, Christmas horror film so far. I mean, is so far, while Krampus is good, and there are a number of others, my absolute, my, my my the one I always go to is a Christmas horror story. And a Christmas horror story is similar to Trick or Treat. It's an anthology of films that is centers around this small town called uh, Bailey Downs, and so. It's these tales that are kind of interwoven amongst themselves. There's one about a possession spirit. There, there's one about a possessing ghost. There's one about a changeling child. There's uh, a, several uh, different stories. It's, like I said, it's an anthology. But the framing narrative is all. And, and it ends with a fight, with a literal knockdown, dragout fight between. Santa Claus and Santa
2: Krampus. And Krampus yeah. Okay, and you
1: just can't fucking beat that shit. And so um, the frame, but the framing narrative even sells it even better because the framing narrative is a is a radio host who's playing the Christmas hits over the evening. He's talking about you know things that went down in the history of the town, and the Christmas host is William Shatner. And I'm like, and he's and he's drunk. Is a drunk William Shatner. Relating the story of like these stories, and then they're all interconnected through the town and everything through the legends of the town, and it ends with a fucking Santa Claus versus uh, Krampus fight, and it's fucking amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Awesome.
0: Uh, so yes, I'm a Christmas go... horror story. Yeah, go. Ahead. Well, what is it, Aaron? I was gonna say it's, uh, maybe Garbage Day. Sometimes.
1: On <laughs> Silent the mood Night, I'm Deadly in. Night, Silent Night, Deadly Night, too. Yay! Garbage yeah. Day. Bam.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, probably Black Christmas. Um, be which up one? there. It. Hmm? Oh, the which original. One? Oh, okay, okay. Shit, the, 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 the original with the original with <laughs> the
1: original with Margo Kidder. Okay, I'm just just making yeah. sure because there are three. So they're progressively oh, yeah, worse. Forget there's three,
0: but yeah, no, the original. Um. Like and that one, I've heard some people say it's kind of not a Christmas one, even though it takes place at Christmas. It doesn't go with all, with the themes and everything. If not that, then Tales from the Crypt. Either one of the ones with the psycho Santa, the original '70s one from Amicus, or the '90s television HBO one. Oh, one the, the the
1: '90s one. And fucking Larry Drake is Santa. It's like a <laughs> fucked up Santa like that. Oh, he was amazing in that
0: fucking
1: mm, ending
0: oh, on it sweet. you're just like <laughs> oh god
1: well Silent Night Deadly Night is a good one as well Silent Night Deadly Night Silent Night Deadly Night 2 which continue to which is a direct sequel before it starts getting all weird and goes off and goes off into left field then you got like um all through the house and uh oh there's a uh oh, god, there's so many the, uh, obviously the uh, the new Silent Night that re- that recently came out that was kind of a not really a remake of the original just a psycho in a Santa suit um, so many good ones.
0: Black Friday could probably be squeezed in. It's more Thanksgiving, but they're kind of starting on Black Friday, it's when they start just jamming Christmas up your right. ass, morning, noon, and night.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's see. Silent Night, Deadly- Gosh of Heckfire says Silent Night, Deadly Night. And then, uh, let me see here. And Casey Cooper says, uh, the Star Wars Christmas special. <laughs> <laughs> um travis brown says i really like the all through the house from the 1989 tales from the crypt episode fuck yeah he was uh, yeah he was great in that. i love i love larry drake i miss him i miss him a lot he was my he, obviously one of one of our favorite icons as uh dr giggles so but fantastic but let us know down in the comments below of course what is your favorite uh, oh there's raven Darkstar with some black christmas uh some black uh, black christmas love so let us know down in the comments below what your favorite Christmas horror film is. There are so many, whether they're anthologies or they are just straight-up horror films. But we'd love to hear what you think and uh, well, what's your favorite is. What's, what's your go-to. Haley Taylor says, not really a horror movie, but my favorite Christmas movie is, of course, Die Hard. It, it's one of the best. you got to watch Die Hard. That's,
0: it's up there. Scrooge is my favorite, just broadly, Christmas oh, Sc- movie. But Die Hard <laughs> comes in right behind. Scrooge is one of those movies that explains... I saw it when I was young and explains so much about how I ended up this way. It just, like, and some part of me perceived that as normal. I was like, that's what we'll do. I love
1: that. I like the, the, what. Uh, even though there were so many in that Carol Kane is my, is my favorite part of that movie was Carol oh, Kane laying the yeah. smackdown on Bill Murray. You don't get much better than that. Cause plus Carol Kane. Oh man. But, um, the, the trailer for their version of Scrooge with the with, you know, international terrorism. As it rained. <laughs> you know, like, what the fuck?
0: That and the, uh, the day the reindeer died. The day the
1: reindeer died. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fucking, <laughs> fucking Lee Majors. <laughs> the night the reindeer died. Not yet. Ugh. Oh, such good stuff. Such fantastic stuff. Alright, so we got the three of us here. We are ready to go. And I'm looking and also a uh, quick reminder that we do this weekend have the next bloodbath debate coming up. And of course, Aaron was here. We did the we did we were gonna do the coin toss, but Aaron wasn't here last week. But we did the coin toss kind of off screen just to let everybody know, give everybody an update. Aaron won the coin toss, and he chose to represent the animals from your next. In uh, in a uh, bloodbath debate against Angela, who will be uh, taking the Strangers. So the Home Invader trios are going to go up against one another. So looking forward to that. That's going to be this Sunday for those who have access to it to come in and be special judges. So look forward to that. That's going to be a lot of fun. All right. So, Aaron, you want to kick us off? What do we got first
0: on the chopping block tonight? All right. First up, from December 18, 1980, we have Night Kill. Let's play that trailer. And
2: that's it. <laughs> Don't you fucking hate it when you like are in the shower and the, the water starts stops running and and the steam starts pouring out and you get stuck in there and then knocked unconscious? Isn't it great?
1: It sucks. Better uh, it, 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 it it having Way somebody flush the
2: toilet. Oh, <laughs> how big is that shower? All
0: right. So, and then the reason that that was so short is this: I found that was a one of the TV movies of a week. I'm like television has gone so downhill since then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it is directed by Ted Post, written by Joanne Gill and John Case, and starring James Franciscus, Mike Connors, Jacqueline Smith, and Robert Mitchum. And it's a West German American, and by which I mean you know produced uh, West Ger- uh, via West Germany. It stars American Star It's crime thriller about a woman who, after being pulled into a plan to kill her sadistic husband is tormented by an unseen stalker while also trying to evade an aggressive detective. Um, And it's one of those where... Some people would try to edge this out of the horror category by saying, it's a thriller, it's not horror, but we've discussed that. We firmly believe that that thriller movies are horror movies, and I've advocated for them being the mystery subgenre of horror. So instead of, like, we're talking about Christmas horror, this is mystery horror. But there's also other good reasons that we're going to talk about for including this in the category
1: oh absolutely sarcasm like to bring up why always with the end of the film in the trailer and that's a very very good that, that i mean it's an excellent question because what you essentially saw was was parts from the end sequence in that and uh i absolutely agree that this that this this absolutely is a horror film number one because robert Mitchum robert Mitchum is a badass i've loved him i mean i think the first thing i ever saw him was like night of the hunter when he played that psycho, you know, preach drifter preacher or guy, and so he was fantastic. That, but I love Robert Mitchum; he's a fan. He was a fantastic character actor. And plus, it's had Jacqueline Smith in it. Oh, one of Charlie's Angels. So, but in this particular one, um, th- okay. So the bi- the big, the big thing on this is that I think. What's really, really important is not only who directed, which was Ted Post, but also the fact that the film the film is uh, you know falls into the film noir character uh, territory, but I think is also giallo because there are things within the film that definitely fall within that category, especially you know when you take sequences like the gaslighting the the main protagonist and of course the the killer like killing all of her animals and you know you know you know psychologically manipulating her and twisting her and shit like that. But it absolutely does. And I think um, that's really what I wanted uh, why this one came up on it, because there are horrific elements within this thing that are very grounded in reality. there's nothing supernatural about the film in and of itself. It's people doing shit to people. But that's what's, you know oftentimes most horrific about these things. I think like, we can say, "uh, oh, thriller, but I like what Aaron how, how Aaron puts it kind of like that subgenre area.
2: Jeez, if yeah, it gets your heart rate up past, you know, a certain level, it should be considered horror. <laughs> you know? Right. If you're like afraid of running away from a stalker, you're you're afraid. That's
0: horror. Well, and you see so many genres, they're defined by they try to define them by subject matter, but then you get like drama, which is so loose and so wide, but horror is less in the subject matter and more in the approach. So you can take just about any subject and topic and approach it through the lens of horror. In this case, they did just that because there's a lot of things in this they could have done without, you know, the visual style they did, the jump scares, um, and then, you know, talking about Giallo with it. The, the things that jump out the most are the small elements, but if you pay attention to it, there's a style in Giallo where it's generally pushed to such a confusing a point or confusing point that you're just like what the fuck is going on here but you can't walk away like you got to know you got to sort it out and this really had that feeling because it starts with a good solid intro and then things just start spiraling out of control from there yeah you're like this lady did nothing but screw the wrong two men and now she's just done for <laughs> <laughs> That Are we was called a giallo or gallo? I don't know. I have to look up. I thought it was Gallo Films. Yeah,
1: gallo Gallo for gallo. for the color for the color yellow because the old um, the old uh, publications used to be have yellow covers to indicate what they were, and so yeah. that's where the
0: term comes from. And, uh, is the is the yellow? God, Let me, me look it up it, it's um, on that history What's of what the Italian giallo, but they're also British.
1: So that was that was the that was the big stand, thing. The uh, the obviously so that that was the big thing about this one and why what led me to to go into this. So and hey Anna Anna, good to see you. It says hey everyone, thank you so much for being here. But and Elizabeth Sylvester, good to see you, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for being here. So and Doctor Who designed. Oh, a bunch of people jumped in. Fantastic! Thank you all for being here so much. Appreciate the support. So first and foremost, it, you know Nightkill was directed by Ted Post, and that was an important thing because Ted Post himself was it was a prolific uh, director who did a number of films and a number, but predominantly a lot of well-known t- TV series. Did Rawhide, Gunsmoke, Twilight Zone. He also directed uh, Magnum Force, Hang 'Em High, uh, Beneath the Planet Apes. Did a lot of work with with Clint Eastwood and but the big thing about this one is is given his given his uh his background is that originally post was not going to be a director originally post was uh was working into other things but he um essentially what happened was that he abandoned plans oh he was going to be an actor but he abandoned plans to become an actor after training with uh Canova and and started directing summer theater and then he uh went into the united states special services in italy during world war ii and then when he was there, he well, because well, he was stationed in Italy, that's where we see the influence of Italian cinema upon him. And He came back, and he was like, when he came back, he was uh he resumed his experiences in theater, and then he was like, boom, I'm gonna be a director. And throughout everything he directed, you can see the Italian influences, uh, the Italian cultural influences, and in everything that he did, and everything he put, he put that kind of gallo mystery film, like kind of like you know film noir spin on virtually everything he touched. So that's why you see, like, with Magnum Force, with the Dirty Harry series, that you see it with Hang 'em High, and the differences between those Westerns and other Westerns that you see is that they have that kind of bend to it. This one in particular is absolutely giallo straight up. And Gallo deals with, like, true crime, uh, brutal aspects of society, really, really dark matter shit, and that's where, uh, film, you know, individuals like, like uh, Fulci and Argento and other people kind of get their influences from. And so... I really, really dug where he took this and how extreme he was willing to go in this depiction of, like, nothing supernatural, just, like, people doing things. And doing things to each other. And the kind of twistiness of what was happening. That, uh, they, that the, the Mitchum's character, the bad guy in it, was ultimately pulling the biggest fast one of all because using everybody's ignorance against them in order to ostensibly get away with the crime? Maybe?
2: <laughs> yeah. Okay.
0: Depends on how, uh... How good security, airport security was back then. I guess wasn't
2: very good, it wasn't good. that's what that's what blew my mind because it does. It plays off that noir feeling of like, oh, what's gonna happen next? And you find yourself like, what's gonna happen next? But then you look back and you're like, wait, why is this happening at all? Like this guy, the original guy, he's supposed to be somewhere. People are waiting for him. Like clearly, he was like gonna be missed. But somebody's like, no, I'll just step in, and nobody's gonna know any better. Yeah, like how long does it last like the flight? That's about as long as you can get away with it. So you're like, what's gonna happen next? But then you're like how no, this wouldn't happen at all. So yeah, it's yeah.
0: It's, well yeah. and that's the way Giallo is too, is like if there's a single thing that defines Giallo, it's intensity and it plays out in everything from the plot. Because I mean, like I said, overall it's a sudden descent into chaos with a quick explanation at the ending, um, focuses heavily on visuals, so you got from the simple things like when she's hugging the guy and looking over his shoulder, they highlight his face fully lit, but around her, they highlight around the eyes, sort of Morticia style from Adam's family movies. Um, and that's a very common trait. A lot of the way they do the lighting, I mean, the the interiors are very lush, especially the house. Some of you see kind of avant-garde style to the furnishings and everything. And uh, if you ever want to know, If an avant garde style is, if it looks like it was supposed to be ahead of its time but never came into style, that is avant garde. Uh, uh, That's a good
2: way of putting it. Okay.
0: They ended up, you know, she's got that whole flight scene. It's these things are added to it that are are somewhat commonplace. Like you've got the, the police behind her, her. Uh, flying around the roadblock, I believe it was. But Mm -hmm. this is a very intense chase with things that are not related to what she's dealing with itself because she's dealing with a body. They have the risk of blowing that. Um, But it's not the main thing. And it goes that way throughout and does the same thing with visual styles because it always goes straight for what it's featuring. So if it's trying to show, like, the tape recorder when she's being spied on, it's his hands, black gloves, which are, like, as giallo as it gets mm-hmm. um, and the recorder running, but then you get outside because they want to really push that. This is, this is Arizona. I think it's in, yeah, this one's in Phoenix. So like they really, even though this is probably not Phoenix in most shots, they really want you to feel like it's Phoenix. So they do these huge wide open shots and it just, it really goes for It's got the soft focus. I mean, it's, it's written all over it. And I think, I have a bad feeling that if he did, had not gotten a chance to go to TV with this, I don't think it would have gotten made. I don't think theaters were going to take a risk on that style back then. They'd import it, but they wouldn't finance it. That's, That's true. My take I would on agree.
1: It. One thing I really, really dug about the movie and uh, that stood out, obviously, you know, I will agree with um, Sarcasm. M- Mitch Robert Mitchell plays the best bastard. He absolutely does. He plays a great bad guy. He always did. And, um, Uh, I totally don't want to space on his name Uh, Mike Connors was fantastic as the asshole husband Who winds up getting smoked I thought he was great He was a perfect bastard the 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 really cool thing about Nightcall, or about these types of films, and I think is is there is the utilization of sound. Sound is always so very important. I noticed that no matter what you know what film you're watching, in Giallo films, sound is always the most important thing because it's the thing that we associate with what is going on, and it, it basically informs our emotional response to what we're viewing at the time. And we're gonna get a little bit heavier into that and do the next film we're gonna talk about. But in this particular one. Post was really, really smart about the sounds that he utilized in order to try and, and create this consistent and kind of growing, uh, in, or this increase in tension throughout the entire movie. First and foremost, our protagonist has no like real stable place to go. Everywhere is either noisy or or you know things are unfocused and things are out of control and she's desperately looking for a lifeline, trying to find something and everybody's you know like for example, like at the uh, at the the gala that she's supposed to go to after the murder of her husband, she's like in this emotional state and the entire the atmosphere doesn't reflect that. And then when she goes home, she can't even have that because even in her own house her husband, her asshole dead husband, had two monkeys in the house that he kept in a giant cage and he would like torment them and shit because he was a total dick. And so he he had these two monkeys, but the monkeys are always loud. So the it's always chaos wherever she's moving. There's always some sort of chaos going on in the environment, and that keeps us on the edge of our seats because we never get a moment of respite. So we're constantly attached with her as she's going through this journey of being you know manipulated by everybody, and we don't ever get a handhold. It's always like what's going on next. There's always something to to grab our attention and pull our attention, and you know because we're with her, she doesn't want to get caught, or she doesn't want to get she doesn't want to get caught by the killer she doesn't want to get uh, harmed, she's constantly running from someone, we are in that emotional state with her because we get no respite from any of the action that's going on. If she's out in the desert dumping a body, there's rattlesnakes out there, there's the sounds of traffic, if she's, you know, if she's, uh, when she was running from the killer in the uh, construction area, there's the sound of the machinery going on, so there's always some sort of chaos going on when she gets no uh, port in the storm and that pulls us with it and it's so important why sound is so important and why your foleys and your scoring is always so vital to creating this atmosphere for your audiences. And I thought that Post did this brilliantly in this particular film because I was feeling her anxiety throughout the entire thing. Every time she's moving, when she even she makes a phone call to her lawyer, her lawyer's in the middle of a party and the party is loud and he's not listening and she's got nothing, you know? And I feel for her. So it really drew me in. I loved that aspect of this particular one. Well,
0: the crazy <laughs> thing, with the audio from uh, Giallo is the fact that a lot of them the original style was done out of necessity because they were recording areas, especially out in public, where they could not get good audio. The technology back then just didn't allow it, the environment didn't allow it, they couldn't shut a lot of the places down to work. So they would literally have some of the stars just because they knew this was going to America. They, obviously it's going to be in Italy, it's going to go to their countries, they literally would just recite the ABCs over and over, and they would drop the dub on top of it. Um, and then the sound was all styled around that, so it came out of necessity in the beginning, but then over time, um, you see it go through various brilliant directors and some less than brilliant directors, um, where they refine that to a style uh, for a point, and then it gets to this, where... They're obviously gonna get the audio from their stars. They paid for Jacqueline mm-hmm. Smith and Robert Mitchum, and they, he made the choice to go after that exact same style and the way he approached everything.
1: Oh, I thought you—I thought you might have something to say. Uh, I, didn't want, I didn't want to step on your toes, Alex. I thought you might have had something.
2: Oh no, you're good. I didn't...
1: <laughs> yeah, this, it was important to point. So first of all, uh, Fangirl '98 is here, and Laura Raider as well. Good to see you both. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, and Fangirls has got a bounce. Uh, but thank you, fangirl. Appreciate you hanging out. Appreciate that. Uh, we'll catch you on the replay. And <laughs> That's plot hole
2: what is
1: at. plot hole is hanging out as well. Good to see you, plot hole uh, or Johnny O. Johnny O, one of our hosts is in the chat. Good to see you, Johnny O. And so um, yes, to answer Haley's uh, Haley Taylor's uh, question, yes, Robert Mitchell was the original Max Katie uh, in Cape Fear before you know, and then in the remake, De Niro took over that role. And um, but yeah, the, uh, and someone else also pointed out. I think it was, sarcasm pointed out, when it finally does go quiet in the film and you finally get like that, because now at, at this point, the the animals have been killed, you know, her dog Cowboy is dead, the monkeys are dead, it's, it's silent in the house and then Mitchum shows up and then all of a sudden it's quiet. She's talking with the detective and that right there, Everything goes quiet because now we're lulled into the false sense of security, the same as her character, same as the character is, that the detective is here, we're going to tell him everything, everything's going to come out, and everything's going to be okay. Nope, he's the bad guy. And so that winds up being the twist, is that he's not who he says he was, he was the private investigator the whole time who is going to screw over everybody and take advantage of his opportunity. So... Yeah, so I love how they did that. The use of sound was very, very important in this. And, of course, I love the visual appeal, how they shot it, the wide-open spaces of Arizona, we, you know, and to establish that we have a big, fat-ass saguaro cactus like right there in front of the house. <laughs> and just, I love the, and the elements of the 80s were really good, because the kind of self-centeredness of individuals in that kind of social strata, the, or I would, I would say not really self-centeredness, but everyone is so focused on their own shit of what's going on, because everybody's so busy, and you know, everybody has money, and they're all focused on the optics of a situation. That's why she can't get any support from anybody, because they're worried about what it'll look for them, or they're worried how it'll look for something else. So she's left all alone, and then this killer is gaslighting her by disappearing bodies, bringing up you know, uh, put you know, bringing up new bodies, and then le- and then it's just that's what I, that's what I really really got. The horror, the psychological horror of gaslighting, is one of the more potent i would say aspects to to horror is when the vil- when the villain is not just there to like stab you stab you or or do whatever but the villain is there in order to essentially psychologically manipulate the the protagonist or the victim to the point that they can't trust anything to get them into that false sense where they where you know the reality that they know is reality they don't realize it and so they think <clears throat> did I imagine this? Did I hallucinate this? Was this? Did I, did I do these things? Did my actions lead to these things? You get them questioning themselves, questioning everything around them. You make them distrust, distrustful, and paranoid, which puts them into a weakened state so that the killer can, or the killer of the, the antagonist, can take advantage of that. That kind of storytelling is really scary to me because if done, obviously by a master manipulator, you could do that. Especially when you get them in a heightened state, like ah, my, the guy I'm banging just murdered my husband without me any... I had no idea, and she's in this emotional state, time to put the screws to her. It's a it's a level of psychological torture. It's a level of torture that is just uh, in your imagination. And that's truly terrifying, which is why I think cements this definitely is a horror film. You know, both reality and uh, what's going on in her mind. And it's so well conveyed on the screen. I love Jacqueline, Jacqueline Smith. I think she knocked it out of the park. Because not really a final girl, but not a Charlie's Angel, you know? She kind of, you know, stand up, but it was like, she was, you know, we always knew her as a Charlie's Angel, but now she's in her just, and not a femme fatale. I love that she brought this, you know, it was such a good, it was such a good little film.
2: So you touch on that, that psychological aspect, the gaslighting. Now that's like a hard balance to do with these films because you can do it, you can do it well and you can do it very, very poorly. And by do it well, I mean when the viewer is watching it, and the viewer is also kind of in a sense being gaslit, you don't really, you think you're, you think one thing, and then at the very end, you're like, oh my God, I was totally wrong the whole time. I did not see that coming. That's good. And then you can do it very poorly, as in like, you know what's going on the whole time. And you're like, well, you're just stupid. Like, obviously people would notice this, or you can pick out little things that make it unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. So you have to have like, you know, there's gotta be that reasonable doubt that that the viewer is actually, too, also being kind of gaslit, you know, for for purposes of the story. Uh, right, right, when we're think,
1: along with her, we, we only have her experience to go on. Right, exactly. So we, we know that else. somebody's pulling the strings here. Right. But then again, she's not exactly an innocent party in these things. Right, and that's, so, I think, what
2: makes this... Because this, it is low-budget, and, and it's got a lot of really kind of technical flaws, in my opinion. But the storyline is... It, it pretty good it, it comes together at the end and you're like okay i can i can deal with the rest of the the kind of slow mixed dialogue that makes no sense sometimes yeah and and kind of get through it so yeah it all around i mean you know it's one of those like maybe it's like a seven out of ten six six and a half in between uh just because if you watch it all the way through if you can handle it
0: yeah it's um so the cool thing there a lot of horror movies you really see in supernatural horror Is they tend to go for the hysterical female in the sense that nobody believes what she's saying. Um, And then you're even sometimes left to question what she's saying. And it's it's honestly, it's a really overused trope. But in this one, yeah, and that falls into the unreliable narrator sort of category because we're following her. But there's no doubt, like, she is left to question what the hell's going on. She is pushing the edge where she is fairly psychologically unstable at points, but we're never left to really question exactly what did and didn't happen. Now, whether it happened the way we thought it did, that does come into question, which is really smart how they play it, because the boyfriend's body turns up in the freezer. Well, he's got a bullet hole in his head, so you know he's dead, but then the husband, um, you know, did he get poisoned or did he survive? You know, and it, it throws those questions everywhere, so... But the entire it kind of got me
1: the 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 twist at the airport kind of like kind of got was like well holy shit Wait, the, that the, it was a holy it was like holy fuck that's him in the car it's like oh ah that <laughs> it's, yeah. I, was, I was quite impressed
0: <laughs> yeah so it's and it's never like they don't ever push it too far to try and hedge the bet um it's it did execute so the the twist and the execute in a way that when that scene arrived and started playing out. Just generally being used to the way a scene is executed, it hit me. I'm like, oh, well. Because pretty much he's the only motherfucker left alive. It's like, who else is doing it? Everyone else is dead. But um, but up until that point, they do a good job of keeping you in suspense and unsure of what is coming. So it's a really well-executed plot in that regard. I mean, like he said, like Alex said, it's. I mean, this is not a 9 or 10 out of 10, but this is a good... Yeah, a good six or seven. It's better than a popcorn movie. It's something you'd intentionally watch down the sea. Um, it, it didn't make me feel like Johnny, where I'm just like, fuck this. Um, I actually <laughs> enjoyed this one.
1: It's a fun one. It, it, it really is. I dug the, all the little aspects that go into it, Um, how it, how narratively. The real strength in this is the, is the writing and the acting. The writing, though, actually I would say the writing, the acting, and the cinematography. Because obviously, with Gallo, it's all about it's all about the storytelling. And I think that uh, Joan Andre and John Kaser did the original story, and I think Joan Andre really, really uh, captured it. it. Is kind because of, adapting adapting stories like that to screenplays can be difficult, but they managed to hit all the notes and they managed to get everything in there, and it never strains credulity to the point that it's like this would be impossible. And I really, really enjoyed. Um, how Ted Post brought it to life with his unique uh, kind of Gallo-inspired style that he took from uh, from his time in Italy and his time directing stage, you know, d- as a stage director. Because stage directing and film di- and you know, f- uh, directing on a film set are, are are way two completely different animals. And I love that sensibility that he brought in capturing specific things about them because. It was, it may appear kind of like, I like that we needed those kind of, okay, so on a stage, performances are big. They're used to being big because you need to give a big performance, which on film will seem overwrought. But on a stage, it works because you need to be able to reach everybody in the entire theater. You have people sitting all the way at the back that have to be able to pick up on what you're trying to convey. So behaviors and actions are meant to be big. So the director is used to being able to see exactly what he wants from anywhere in the theater. But when you're up close and personal, it's a little bit different. You you want subtle. You want small because the camera's right there in your face. But if you blend the two and you have your actors convey a particular thing large in order to really get that across then you can in service to this particular narrative force the audience along the path that you want them to which is important in this kind of storytelling because we really need to sell that the, that the husband is a monster is an absolute monster which is why his performance is so big when he's in the desk and he's yelling at his secretary and he's saying, oh, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll send you, I'll put you back on the on the sidewalk where I met you or blah, 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 blah. And he's so an, an, such an abominable asshole that we then look at the wife in a particular light and the people around him in a particular light, which helps to service the plot. So all this kind of a perfect storm of, of, of everything that comes along, a great little kind of just like I would say midnight movie, That you can sit down and really, really sink your teeth into. This is kind of one of the perfect ones that almost slips under the radar, especially in 1980. You know, mired in a sea of slashers, and you know everybody trying to jump into that pot after you know after Friday the Thirteenth kind of like sprang out, was like, "Hey, check it out! Oh, you know, uh, this is the new thing." So I love that uh, this was in there and told a really, really compelling story. A lot of fun.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. She wasn't a bad person. Her problem was she surrounded herself with terrible people, Terrible so people. when she was in her moment of need, like, there was no one there.
1: I could have dealt but, without the casual misogyny, I mean, obviously it's 1980, so there was the casual misogyny throughout, how everybody's telling her what she thinks, telling her what she feels, disregarding her, like, you know, when the lawyer's, like, coming onto her and she's just like, get the fuck off me, and he's like, no no, 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 that shit was just cringe, but, you know, it was a different time, but, uh... But, yeah.
0: <laughs> I think they're trying to illustrate, like, how terrible everybody around her was. Because, like, the one person, you get a sense she's good. I can't even remember her name, but it's the lawyer's wife. And then she feels betrayed, so she's like, screw you. And everybody else just could give a damn. Just, yeah, it's like isolating. they can her, they don't want her.
1: It creates that isolating environment that there's no one in her circle. She has no support structure. No one at all. Even the guy... Who killed her husband because he loves her supposedly he loves her and he is tired of her being abused even he ends up leaving her alone because he makes the decision unilaterally with no input from her no planning whatsoever he just does it he just goes about it and, go, and so it's like that that level of disrespect so even she was alone in that respect then her friends aren't really her friends her lawyer just wants a piece of her just wants her ass that's pretty much all he really really wants and now he's you know I love how it, it set it up. It kind of like... It, it How it also makes us aware that societally it creates situations where ostensibly you're, you're more alone than you think you are. That when the shit really hits the fan, you find out who your friends really are. And how she's not only kind of created the situation herself, but she's also a victim of her circumstances. Because she kind of married into this situation. Which blows. And so... You know you you find this 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 kind of like ripe opportunity for bad guys to come in and take advantage, and that's you know the beauty of this kind of storytelling is that it has that really solid reflection of reality there, which is why I think it grounds it and makes it horror,
0: yeah, it's that old saying, "Lay down with dogs, you'll stand up with fleas." I mean yeah. it doesn't matter how good you are if you surround yourself with bad people. it's gonna either rub off on you or you're gonna end up paying for it. Alright, so the question we have for the audience is, what is your favorite or what do you think is the best horror noir movies like Nightmare Alley, Shutter Island, Angel Heart, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? Uh, you let us know in the comments down below in the live chat or drop us an email at weekendhorror at gmail.com. And uh, uh, my favorite's right there in the title, Angel Heart, just because I dig the era. I uh, I really loved Angel Heart as
1: well. I I dug it very very much. another one I really dug was was Upgrade. That was a recent one. Was Upgrade because it it blended horror and science fiction and the, and some action, but it definitely had that noir storytelling. That that kind of horrific cuz you know the, the 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 it was a gruesome film and you know what's going on in this, you know it, what's going on in this. And but the elements there were were just beautifully done. It's kind of like this kind of futuristic sci-fi horror action movie that is I think is kind of like a spiritual successor to Ex Machina. But I strongly recommend that one for anybody who uh who would take it. Oh, uh Angel Heart uh Laura Raider says I enjoyed Angel Heart and Sin City. Oh, Sin City, a lot of film yeah, a lot of noir there. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, noir translates disturbingly well to a lot of genres. Like I'm a big fan of Cyberpunk and it plays right I mean Blade Runner. And it plays along really well just with that. All right. So yeah. with that, go ahead and hand it over to Alex.
2: Oh, who me? Let's, uh, let's kind of stay in that noir category, huh? I guess more, more, uh, Gallo. definitely
1: the, definitely that Gallo territory. From Absolutely. Gallo. Cause, Cause we're going to go from West Germany and we're going to pop over to Italy.
2: We're just going to hang out there for a minute. Uh, and we'll do that in the film terror at the opera, uh, this one came out December nineteenth, nineteen eighty-seven. Wasn't it originally just supposed to be opera?
1: I think it was. It was. It was originally Terror at the Opera*, and then was renamed to just *Opera*.
2: Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Right. Let's check out this Holy. trailer. I just imagined him putting sunglasses on right before something. <laughs> <laughs> Final <laughs> note was the real killer. All right, so uh, this is an Argento film. Uh, Dario direct, Argento directed and co-wrote this. Uh, this is starring Christina. Marzalak, Urbano Barberini, Daria Nick. Nic- oh, damn it, I thought I had it, Nicolati, uh, and Ian Charleston. And this film <laughs> was great. It was, okay, so it focuses on an opera singer who kind of gets her big shot uh, because her her the star of the Macbeth play gets run over by a car. And then, uh, so she gets her shot and then ultimately gets involved in a series of murders that happened brutally inside of this opera house. Uh, and it's directed beautifully. Some of these, it, it's, it's, yeah, no, this is good.
1: I definitely have to say, so, um, obviously the, one of the, one of the last Argento masterpieces, um, I yeah. freaking, I absolutely adored this movie. Everything about it was phenomenal. So, um, it was it's kind of hard to know a place to start so first and foremost the film like like you said the film is shot incredibly beautifully and I love um oh okay so so first and foremost so yes Alex Alex said it he he but we're not on stage so you know cool. Aaron Aaron said Alex said <laughs> Macbeth so here <laughs> comes the sure. You, you can't say it you can't say when you're in the theater but you can't say it everywhere else. So the, uh, it's really, really funny. So the, the story behind the actual production in and of itself was Argento, um, said that he based, uh, his experiences, um, he based this film on his experience directing a failed production of Verdi's Macbeth, um, of, which starred actually Ian Charleston, who was in this, who was in this movie, he, uh, he played Marco. And, he said himself that that the production itself was so chaotic it just was just an absolute atrocity that it kind of inspired this movie in and of itself. And the idea, the plot device of the needles taped under the under under the girl's eyes, um, came from a joke that Argento made that he really didn't like it when people watched his scary movies and then they would look away. They like when he looked away during the scary moments, and he wished that he could tape needles under their eyes to force them to watch it so they would actually see you know uh, all the work that he went into. Um, but there are definitely allusions to this in the actual storyline because we have the killer who was essentially forcing the girl, the main girl of the, uh, of the, uh, uh, Betty's forcing Betty to watch all the terrible things that, or it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was Betty was uh, forcing her to watch all the horrific things that he's doing to her friends. So anybody that gets close to her, this killer shows up and, and kills her. So, but then turns around and kind of, gaslights her to a respect or manipulates things so that she can't go to anyone and nobody will believe her because the claims are so extraordinary and so these people are dying around her in really horrific fashions like gruesome fashions whether it's the, the guy that she tries to sleep with or a friend who's trying to help her uncover the mystery and so we have this killer who's like kind of controlling all these aspects of her life until the gruesome you know conclusion and um Essentially, reality not being what, what people think it is, or people questioning their own realities, has allusions in and of itself to the story of Macbeth and, and the Lady Macbeth arc in that and how as these horrific things are going on, and in the reaction to that, you know, questioning everything that's going on and questioning ourselves and questioning our reality and slightly going wondering if we're the crazy ones and such. And then, of course, obviously allusions to Phantom of the Opera. Now, Argento said. There was no real connection. Argento alludes that there's no real connection to Phantom of the Opera, no real inspiration. It's like, come on though, it's like very a obvious.
2: Mass killer it, in an it, opera house. Like, okay.
1: Exactly. There's even a sequence where a booming voice comes from the upper boxes <laughs> in the theater itself. It's like, come on, man. He's like lurking about Shoot. the theater, watching her, and so she's and she's the new. Uh, she's come on as the new starlet, and then he's going to kill everyone around her to protect her from you know whatever. I don't fucking know. Because he's obsessed with her. Come on, it's absolutely Phantom of the Opera. It's just redone, and of course, it even. And here's what's really interesting, and I wonder if y'all caught uh, caught it as well. Was the very end sequence, towards the end sequence, not the final sequence, not, not the final when there, when she's out there in like the the Alps hanging out in the in the house, but the final moment where we have the big confrontation, and she's tied up in the chair and she's blindfolded, and he's standing there. And he doesn't want her to look at him because his eyes all fucked up because he got I think because he got stabbed in the eye, and yes. so he's sitting there and he's like I'm just gonna you know end everything and I'm gonna kill but you know burn everything down so he sets fire to everything and his intention is to kill himself and then she'll die in the blaze, but of course she manages to escape and then we find out later on it was all a big ass ruse and that the body that burned up was actually just a mannequin was actually a fake that uh, that was in the uh, that was there in the room, which I think. Um, Argento lifted deliberately from Red Dragon, from Thomas Harris's Red Dragon, which was published in 1981, and the the movie Manhunter came out in 86, so... which is an adaptation of that one, so I think that he pulled that final sequence, because it was literally... she's blind, she doesn't know how how to... she can't escape, she's blind, and he sets a fire, and he acts like he's going to kill her, but then he doesn't, then he supposedly kills himself, and you know i think he pulled that directly from thomas harris's work but all in all despite that a wonderfully uh composed film and, and uh, with uh, of course argento's uh obsession with like uh, close ups of eyes because eyes are psychologically scary because it was all about you know get up in there and you know terrible trauma eye trauma is fucking scary <laughs> <laughs> it is it's one it's
2: it is everything that you perceive, if you are seeing, you know, if you can see, like, you're perceiving the world around you, I couldn't imagine. It's like one of my, that's one of my biggest fears is becoming blind. It's terrifying. It's terrifying.
0: You can't well, see Your it, eyes are but... so damn fragile, too. Like, right? you can take beatings elsewhere. You can even convince me some of the bullet wounds that would be, like, maiming in these movies that they could recover in a couple months. But, like, you jack up somebody's eye. That ain't coming back. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, that's, yeah. No. That's yeah. It's terrifying.
1: So sarcasm or sarcasm brings up that the peephole uh, was redone in the Saw franchise, and is reason number one why he why he won't look into uh, why he won't look into peepholes. So it was also done in a movie uh, with uh, in an action uh, that that was a trope that was done in the movie I See You with uh, Sylvester Stallone, which uh, it was a serial killer film, which I highly recommend people check out because it's a rare dramatic turn for Stallone, but there was a killer who did the same kind of thing, only it wasn't a gun. It was with a big-ass drill. He would, like, drill into the peephole and catch people when they were looking through it. So I've seen
0: a couple movies with that, and it's the reason that I don't look through peepholes with the lights on, because if you look from inside a peephole with the light on, somebody can see that the light's obscured, by your head. Yep. And that's when they like, I can just nail you. Like, <laughs> cut the lights off. And go into fortress mode.
1: That's <laughs> <laughs> in fortress mode. So, um, obviously, the... That was an awesome shot. So... The peephole kill scene, when he's, like, flashing, when he's, like, looking, when, he, when she looks at the people and all she sees is the eye. And then she sees, like, this badge that's kind of there and it's all dark because he's got the power. And so he's using a flashlight to, obviously, you know, we know this is the bad guy that's out there. And he's, like, trying to show her the badge. You can't really see it. And then all of a sudden, dude, here's my gun. Check out my gun. He's like, no, no, I want to see the badge again. And then he sticks the gun directly into the peephole. And she's, like, uh, like looking really close. It's like, oh, this is not going to end well.
2: That's,
1: this was that's an not where that goes. For 1987, this was an incredibly well-done shot because obviously the gun fires, the bullet traveling through the the people, they you know catching that shot. And then, of course, what was really ballsy, and this was this was what I thought was really really interesting, is that if, if for anybody who watched the movie itself, you remember that the the film was shot uh, in the profile where she's looking into the people, and all of a sudden you see the back of her head, you know, explode out, and then she goes backwards when the when the bullet comes through and kills her. And originally, Daria Nicolodi didn't actually didn't want to play that role because the character's death was so extreme. It was so shocking to her and, and incredibly elaborate. And the reason it was very frightening to shoot is because there was a small amount of explosive that was placed on the back of her head in order to achieve that effect of the bullet coming through. And so an incredibly elaborate and dangerous shot that they managed to pull off to do the peephole kill, but then, and I and it just it got me. I had to go back and watch it a couple of times because the way it's timed with the music, and then the vantage point because we see her get shot and then she goes down. The explosive goes off, the bullet goes through. But then Argento comes around and does like a headlong, kind of like a shotgun shot, where now all of a sudden we have three areas of focus in in one shot, and so we have her at the background getting shot. And then we have Betty in this in the mid ground in the midground uh, mid reacting to what's happening. And then the foreground, a vase exploding from the bullet coming through. And I thought that was just absolutely brilliant the way each other with a slight slowdown, slightly in slow motion, so we can get the the, the real effect of this. And I thought that was so that only argento you know that kind of brilliance there what i thought that was but just line that up and to get that uh get that correct especially such a dangerous stunt just goes to show the level of planning and the level of vision that argento had i thought it was a brilliant aspect of the movie that that was super cool and risky for daria because that was that's a dangerous fucking stunt because that was her not a stunt woman who pulled that because she's got to be the one there recognizable at the people to pull that off so so fucking cool
0: If it, honestly, if it had been on any newer production, I don't think it would have been as good because they wouldn't have executed this all practically. They would have tried to throw in some CGI, and it's just not impressive. And that's actually one thing, too. When the round came out of the back of her head, like, I was like a kid in a candy store, simply for the fact that I see so many movies where they shoot somebody, blood comes out of the back of their head onto, like, I saw one last week with a lamp. And I started ranting like a crazy person. I'm seeing cars. (laughs) Blood comes out of the back of their head. But then whatever the blood hits is fine. If blood's coming out of the back of your head, so is a bullet. And that damn window's going to shatter. But he was smart because he used that. You need, you know, it's the line is the, uh, line is the, uh, what is it, fast through between two points. But basically from where she got hit to the base, shows the line of trajectory and how close it came to Betty. That she was almost caught in this thing. Right. Um, so it established the, established the tension for that. And then, you know, we're talking about the eye thing. That's Argento loved eyes. And that going back to the Phantom of the Opera, like if you didn't get the clue earlier on, because he's not just yanking the plot line, This this alludes to it, but it's never that plot line completely. But after his eye has been taken out, and the ravens nummy numbed on it while we watched.
1: Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. Because he was killing the ravens earlier in the f- killing the crows earlier in the movie, and because yeah. he was like killing the crows, and the crows like remembered, I guess, <laughs> and then they yeah. get released, and they immediately like that motherfucker right there, ah,
0: <laughs> and they yeah, fucking
1: like- peck his eye clean out of his head. Oh, and yeah, a great took, shot of the, the crow eating his eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> it
0: took time to show it munching on the eyeball with this chaos is going down, and these people are just like, Aah! in this theater. But um, he, when he's got her and he's tying her up, and he's lamenting that his eye is taken out, which, you know, you learn that that's... Is, he's already plotting what he's doing to get out of there, but he's like, how will you ever accept me now that I'm, you know, I can't remember if you said maimed or something... To that effect, that was exactly along the lines of the Phantom, of o- the opera, where, you know, he wouldn't, he kept it concealed and he kept his, very hid and he kept his face concealed. And it was that one side in several of the productions. Um, not in the most famous, one, most famous can be more of the upper face, but in a lot of them, it was just the left side of his face. And I was like, if you didn't have a clue before then, you do now that, like, he stole some stuff, which the entire three sister series is from literature it's from poetry mm-hmm. um i can't pull the author out of my head right now but that little bit inspired that trilogy so no he he's never i don't think he's ever hidden the fact that he should take inspiration so we say shall we say from other movies and incorporate it so i wouldn't be surprised if he read that in the book and was like that's going in
1: that's going in the fucking movie. <laughs> and see, I don't and I don't I, I don't fault him for it. Obviously, if, if something works, definitely use it. If if you could uh, but try and make it your own. And I think he did this quite well. He said, essentially he took the same kind of elements and just reworked them in a way that, that services the plot. And I think that Argento did that really well because too often directors will look at it and be like, Oh, that's great, that solves that problem for me, and I'm just gonna utilize that and you know to kind of shore things up. I thought that was well done because he's like, no, 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 we're gonna tweak this so that it fits more with our, with where we are, and it's, you know, it kind of like follows along with the plot here. Is that what you know? What this guy's psychopathy is and what his intentions are regarding the young Soprano. So, I think that was really important. That Argento was really good at utilizing inspiration from others, but making them his own and putting his own unique kind of spin on them. So, I really, really dug that. And uh, he did it, like I said, he did the, it
2: confidently.
1: Yes, it's a, b- a beautifully done film, and so and, and it was cla- full of classic, Ar- classic Argento risk taking because Ar- Argento was always a risky director. He will always try to push the envelope and do something, of, do something more extreme, more gripping, something to really, really grab people's attention. And the, the things he does, the choices he makes as a director regarding sound, regarding editing, how he lingers on his shot, what he tries to encapsulate. Trying to do new and interesting things like having the camera running around as the birds are flying around the opera. Saying, well, let's get it from the bird's eye view. Let's get that wing in there so we look like the camera's going around with it. Really good stuff like that. And then, of course, what I love is what he did in this was with sound. Is that all of the sequences in the opera where everybody is kind of doing their thing, where everybody is, try- is being who they are performing. Because he really chalks it up that real life is not a performance and that... Who we try to be is a performance. And so he juxtaposes these by anytime there is any kind of association with the theater or any that we are playing these roles that we have, there's always the, the the operatic music. So even when the killer is trying to kill her and then finally when they're in the apartment, you know, even in that moment, there's there's the operatic music playing. And the purpose for that is because these are all the roles that we are either playing or forcing others to play in our own melodramas. But every time our characters walk out into the real world, it's – it uh, the soundtrack was – or the scoring was post – it was kind of like this post-cold uh, – or i say post-Follow the Berlin Wall anarchist kind of like, you know, like anti-government kind of like metal, uh, heavy metal, heavy – or heavy me- uh, metal or heavy rock that juxtaposed that's what the real world is like. The real world is chaotic, you know, and it informs a lot of us. But then we have these moments where everything is just performance – but that chaos lies underneath. It's always waiting just outside. And so beautifully rendered the way I think. And it was very risky. But I think and because some people I heard that were really put off by it. It's like all of a sudden it's this beautiful crisp kind of music that doesn't really fit the scene. But then she goes out and there's nothing happening. And it's hardcore rock. And it's like, ah. But look at what he's trying to convey about the environments themselves. And that just goes to show more of Argento's genius in how he tells a
2: story. <laughs> When you said that at the end, when it's like this, this crisp, clean music and then hardcore rock, I just thought of uh, Call of Duty Zombies. It was just, <laughs> it just popped in my head. Like, yep, that sounds about right. Yeah, no, it's, you're absolutely right. There's, so you kept talking about the crows and stuff, and I have to throw this in there because it was a fun little piece that I read about it. They used about 140 crows on the scene, and it would take them hours after these shots to, like, you know get the crows back into the cages
1: to reset them
2: <laughs> so i thought that was hilarious but so they brought 140 crows in and they only recovered like 60 of them so like these crows i guess would like find their way out and just be free crows now so like, fuck <laughs> this i quit and then like leave and so yeah they only got you know they got less than half their crows back which i thought was kind of hilarious
0: i'm not surprised ravens are supposed to be extremely intelligent That's um so smart. but yeah the, the sound so he started taking the the risk on audio like that back in Suspiria mm-hmm. because he had Goblin do that entire soundtrack and it was completely antithetical to everything that came before. It was against the Giallo origins that he had because he was moving into horror. Um, it was against what you typically saw in that genre, um, especially because he was using classic location and everything, but it worked out wonderfully. And it's it's interesting how it mixes because you're... Your first instinct would be to say, "Do the opera during the lighter scenes, and then jump to the the heavier stuff when you want to crank the intensity." But you actually tend to see more, I think, of once she's exited this oddly surreal situation. A lot of times is when some of that metal's playing, and then the chief example of the opposite is when she's in her apartment fleeing him; she just cranks the opera. And there's a right. practical reason for that because she's listening to it. She needs to deafen him to where she's going and everything. But at the same time, instead of, you know, automatically jumping to the heavier rock to kind of outline the intensity, he just goes with the music that that suits the moment. Um, and then, two, I mean, you see throughout it, his one of his big things are his lighting choices, which, you know, I've always said that that's why I went with the lighting that I did in the end is because I like. I like the fact that he goes to full intensity because it works really well with film stock from Suspiria in that era. He had newer film stock, though, so he kind of used that. He differentiated differentiated some of it. So in her front hallway, especially you see it when she's put the drops in her eyes and she can't see the officer and everything. The drops themselves are green, and then she has these large windows that have been painted almost a... um, kind of a an abstract stained glass sort of effect with greens on them and everything and it projects in the front hall and you'll see this here and there in the theater too where he introduces this immense intensity of color and then within the opera itself the scenery and the costumes it like when you look at it from the point of view of the guy that was directing this musical you're like dude what the fuck (laughs) Like, you're kind of full of yourself. But when you look at it from his point of view, who he is, what he does, it makes absolute sense. And it's used to amazing effect when the guy starts firing theater because you've got these new dancers that are moving slowly almost like ghosts under that uh, kind of tool material, the the transparent material. Mm -hmm. And one of them takes a bullet and that blood (laughs) just blows all over the inside of that veil. And it's like oh damn like my standards involved (laughs) such
1: such intense moments and just extreme kind of like just you know it's it's wild how argento and it's 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 how argento was able to pull such things off and really convey these things just you know whether it's a slow burning tension or just all of a sudden things just turn insane in just one moment and I think all of it, you know, it really comes to fruition. Like, all of the things that he's learned, all the things that he applied kind of came together in this particular movie. I think it's had some of his best vision. And while Suspiria, obviously, regarded as one of his best works, the, the Three Mothers trilogy, obviously regarded as, as probably some of it, probably his magnum opus, I think that, that this is a particular film where all of the elements that he loves all come together so seamlessly because he's, he's so good at doing them. And so he's really, really... Uh, mastered everything that he likes, and he's like, and now I can. He can play in that sandbox that he's established so well, which is why I think anybody, no, nobody should miss this one. Is if you're an Argento fan, definitely check this one out if you, get, if you get a chance, because you pretty much after this you get the you get you get kind of into his decline, which is a damn shame because um, what was it? It was pretty much um, the way I was looking at it. Um. That it was like I think it was after after the 70s and 80s kind of the golden age is when standards began to kind of decline and his kaleidoscopic style of filmmaking began to kind of like fade away and so now things are just kind of like movies just put together for the sake of putting together movies which is a, it' a fucking shame I don't I don't like it um, but you know he'll always have that place in the 70s and 80s where he did his best work and this is towards the end of that which is why it's, I think it's such an important film.
0: Well, it's, and it's when, so his heyday was timed along with the heyday of um, Giallo and horror in Italy. And then you see later on, they start moving towards more body horror related stuff like yeah. Cannibal Holocaust and everything. So the budget wasn't there. The interest wasn't there, which is really heartbreaking because the third in the Three Mothers series was done much, much later. I can't remember what year it was done. But significantly later, and I, I barely got into it because his daughter was involved with it. And I, I think she did disservice to anything she worked on with her dad. You know, she's a good enough actress, but I, I've i never liked the stuff she's directed. So just not finishing that out that was a little heartbreaking. Yeah.
2: Okay. So we agree this
0: one was good. <laughs> Alex is like, well, yep. Yeah.
2: All right. Aaron's like Aaron's <laughs> killing this one, so I was just letting him run with it. <laughs> um, but I wanted to ask because we are talking about Argento, and you're talking about kind of this being at the back end of his his heydays. I'd say this was kind of the climax of his his career. This time period kind of falls off afterwards, pretty pretty hard. But what do you feel is the best Argento film? The best Argento horror there's so many good ones. I would put this one up in at least the top 3.
1: I definitely would top 3 this one. Um Suspiria is also up there. Um I honestly think uh Tenebrae is probably my favorite. Um okay. I loved I loved that one. I think uh 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 was it also named Phenom was it uh, Phenomena? I think was the name <laughs> of it. Um was the American name for it, if I remember correctly
2: uh phenomena
0: unsane was yeah it was a uh, creeper oh oh uh, unsane yeah. unsane
1: was it of tenebrae and then phenomena was uh, the english title was creepers yeah, so yeah. but tenebrae i thought was really phenomenal because that came right after inferno and um before he did uh demon i think before he did demons so i really liked tenebrae i thought it was raw it was powerful it was just just you know well done him just kind of like balls to the wall and uh but you know demon's also fantastic suspiria is great um yeah travis brown says suspiria as well but definitely yeah, yeah i but, think
0: it'd be inferno or suspiria one of the two i don't even know which
1: but definitely let us know uh what you think is the best argento horror film down in the comments below or of course at week horror uh week and at gmail.com and uh definitely in the live chat here we'll uh, see what people think Oh, and I see we got some new people here. Nocturnal Lux is here. It says uh, Opera's ending was so so weird. So that's an interesting thing about about Terror at the Opera. Originally, that extended sequence where she's like after the killer's caught and she's all by herself and she's out there like in the Alps and she like frees the the lizard that's trapped in the gla- in the grass. Originally all that was cut. Originally, that was not a part of the theatrical release because it just—it literally ends with the the movie and the theatrical cut ends with the killer getting caught and then she goes free and then the final line of that when she walks away, when they're like, you know, um, how did you get him to like not kill you? And she was like, what did you say to him to get him to not kill you? And she's like, nothing, nothing at all. And then the movie kind of ends from there. That original kind of extended kind of epilogue there was uh, Argento kind of like trying to give this metaphor for now she's free um which was weird and it didn't play with audiences very well which is why it was cut from the theatrical and you know didn't make it till the uh, to the actual home release so yeah not originally a part of the movie it was really strange it was just this weird metaphor that just kind of, <laughs> kind of comes out of nowhere but that's that argento risk-taking where he's really trying to convey something to the audience and put it in terms that people can can easily digest, like, oh, she's freeing the trapped lizard because he, she herself is also free from the trappings of, of the expectations of society and the killer and all this stuff. It's fucking, it was definitely definitely weird. The and the the monologue she has is also really really weird. I thought she was kind of like, wow, this girl is officially unstable at this point. But that's just that was just my take. But absolutely, uh, let me see here. So I think we we had some uh say nocturnal lexis here, and uh oh, I think. I hate it when I have to sneeze. Okay, I'm good. Ordinary Jeff is here. Good to see Ordinary Jeff. And uh, I think uh, Laura Raider as well. And I think I saw somebody new popped in, and I wanted to make sure that I said hi to him. Oh, there's CPM. Good to see you, CPM. And of course, Broken Smitty Broken Skulls is here. So good to see you, Smitty. Thank you so much for being here. Appreciate that. Thanks for popping in.
2: I'm surprised oh, nobody my. said uh, Deep Red.
1: Oh, as far as their favorites?
2: Yeah. I was waiting for it. Nobody said it.
1: <laughs> Maybe you're the only one that loves Somebody
2: it. Somebody said it, I guess, yeah. I <laughs> could just be the only <laughs> one that enjoyed that film.
1: Uh, all right. So. Let's uh,
2: jail. Let's go to London.
1: Yes, now we're off to London. So we're all over the place. So I love it. Uh, <laughs> So for our next film, oh, and Leanne Richards here. Good to see you, Leanne. I want to make sure. I knew I was. Think I was forgetting somebody, but good to see you, Leanne. Thanks so much for being here. Wrote it in last name. Said deep red. Thank so. you. <laughs> all right. So for our next film, we've got uh, this released December twentieth, two thousand five, and we have the London horror, the London Underground horror, Creep. Let's check out this trailer. All right. So we, cre- <laughs> so we have
2: creep.
1: So we have creep, written and directed by Christopher Smith, starring Frank Potente, Ken Campbell, Vass Blackwood, Jeremy Sheffield, and Sean Harris. So this film follows uh, Frank Potente's character, um, uh, Kate, who misses her train, misses the final train because she dozes off in the uh, in I guess the terminal and misses the last train and winds up trapped in the London Underground with a horribly deformed. Uh, hideously deformed uh, killer who's down there stalking her and, of course, killing anyone that she comes across. Um, it's okay. So, the, okay. So, the film in and of itself is pretty bare bones. I mean, this is you know standard standard fare when it comes to you know woman trapped in place with monster monster to kill and then her, and then her attempts to escape. Um, I like how it it. So Christopher Smith uh, arguably arguably is a really, really talented director. I like his other... This is his first film, his first feature film. Um, for those who don't know or are not familiar with Christopher Smith, he is the mind behind uh, movies like Triangle that starred Melissa George, which was the time loop one on the ship, which I thought was a brilliant horror film. And then, of course, uh, people may, may remember Sean Bean in Black Death. He uh, directed that one. And, of course, The Banishing and Detour and Severance, which I thought... I mean... Ostensibly, he's a really, really good director with a good sense for trying to subvert tropes, which he did kind of did in this with Franca Patente's talented, uh she's a very talented actress, and subverted the kind of scream queen trope. Because she is a final girl. I mean, a kind of, because it's a slasher, you know, the slasher elements uh, to the monster, the way it, you know, carves up people and you know, and kind of there may be some cannibalism, I'm not 100 percent sure. But uh he wanted to really convey that. Uh, the final girl in this respect didn't do what final girls typically do, which I enjoyed. And it's odd because a lot of people pointed out, oh, well, she, a lot of critics pointed out, oh, well, she's not the typical final girl because she's German. I don't like to look at it look at it that way, that you didn't need to cast a German girl who, you know, makes a big point of the fact that she is German in order to convey that she's different from other final girls. But I like what he attempted to do with that. He subverted the kind of scream queen trope and allowed the character to kind of define itself, which I enjoyed. It was so there were some elements there that was kind of like, "Oh, okay, don't expect to see that." And for a first effort, I thought it was not bad as far as trying to like do something a little bit new.
0: yeah, it's a there are a couple of moments in there where she does the frustrating things where she'll come undone or she touches a rat and suddenly it's the end of the world, and she's firing down a sewer slide. but uh in general, She's smart enough to work towards a goal because she's got the um the heroin addict that uh, I forget his name, Jimmy, something like that or Kenny. But she uh is trying she gets him to help guide her towards the control room. She finds call button and tries to go but she's always trying to go forward, even when the people with her aren't. She's always goal oriented and going towards that. So Um, I got to give it to him that they didn't take and it's not like the whole time she's just running unmanned. Yeah, she's fleeing this guy, but she's always heading or at least trying to head towards a solution rather than just ending up wherever the hell she ends up while she's uh, fleeing from him.
2: Except CPM makes a great point. Why would you shine the light on your own face? I never (laughs) understood this as well. The whole, because I've tried it, because I'm like, well, maybe, no, you can't see shit. Like, you're blinding yourself completely. It, it makes no sense. Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> uh,
0: what? I think yeah. she's, if it's the scene I'm thinking about, I think she was technically trying to test the flashlight. But, yeah, I wouldn't be, like, yep, destroying it works. my night vision in order to get it done. Yeah, flashlight just... works. Now my eyes don't.
1: Okay, so die. so uh, so there. I think there was, and, and of course, CPMO's was, and marking yourself, indicating your location, absolutely. But she does it. She does when she's running from the killer through the stacks and everything, and she winds up in that little alcove, and she and she turns the light off. So that makes sense. When she did that, so she wouldn't indicate her position. So there, there were some things that that played, some things that did not. But I think that makes it ultimately a little. That kind of grounds it in some realism in a person who's in an extreme situation who is not used to being in extreme situations and doesn't kind of... Because remember, these characters ostensibly don't really have the horror film knowledge that we have. So we're like, why would you do that? It's like, no, 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 no. Look at it from the perspective of someone who doesn't engage in stuff regularly. Like, for example, the characters in The Walking Dead. Characters in The Walking Dead don't ever call them zombies because zombie fiction doesn't exist in The Walking Dead universe. So they come up with different, different, like lurkers or roamers or biters or rotters or walkers. They don't call them zombies because they don't have a term for it. Because that kind of literature and that fiction doesn't exist there. So this character not being, a, not somebody who ostensibly gets in these situations, will do things, they'll, they'll learn, they'll have to learn as they're going. And typically you, we know that learning as you're going can get you killed in a horror in a horror situation. But she's got to figure it out. And eventually she does. She makes some smart decisions here and there. But um, I like what Smith was trying to do by kind of subverting expectations a little bit, saying that essentially try to create an environment where you don't know 100% if she's going going to make it out of this alive, considering that she has nowhere to go, she's lost in the subways, and at one point gets captured by this hideous monster thing or this human or whatever it is. But sarcasm brings up a good point. Why is there a doctor's lab in the damn subway? And I think this is where... I gotta bring up the, I gotta bring this smart thing. This is what I liked about what Smith did. It's important to when you have a lack of when you have limited budget and you're filming in and, and you first and foremost you have to take advantage of where you're filming. You have to take advantage of your sets. You have to take advantage of the production quality that you have. They're filming in the London Underground. Alex, you've been to London, so uh-huh. I never, I've never actually have been myself, but you've been there. You've ridden the tube. It's a very claustrophobic and very I would say almost alien kind of thing. It's not like American subways, that it's very, very different, and I think creates a the perfect kind of opportunity to create a claustrophobic and very daunting kind of environment to try and navigate, especially in the dark.
2: So watching this movie reminds me of being in London. So we went in like 22, no, I'm sorry, 2005. So it, we went for, uh, for band. I was in the drum line. We got to play in the London uh, New Year's Day Parade which was wild. But that also means this is one of the biggest prayers in the world. So there's a ton of people that are there. And so we're like, like 15, 14, 15. And they just give, they're like, here, buy this, this tube ticket. It'll take you anywhere in London. Okay. You guys have two hours to kind of go explore. So I'm thinking about it now. I'm like, I'm this 15 year old, 14 15 with all these other like high school kids. And they just like let us loose into this London underground, which was insane because you walk in there and you're immediately lost. If you like leave the stairwell or the, the hallway that you came into, you're, you're done. Like I had no idea, you had to get on a train because I had no idea how to get back. So you get onto the train and then it takes you through this tube, just winding all over the place. And then bam, you're at another, place. it's the exact same though. And it's like, okay, now I, I don't know how to get out of here. So just being like, with all these people all around just being in there on a normal day is scary. I couldn't imagine like accidentally falling asleep in that that place because it's totally different than anywhere you're, you'll ever be in the world right and so so you're like you got no idea where you're at you fell asleep you wake up nobody's there which is kind of an asshole move you should probably wake somebody up if they're sleeping and The doors are closed but whatever um it, it just you're you're it, i could not even imagine how terrifying that would be and then to throw this disfigured psychopathic murder killer guy near, it's like no no just kill me. right I just so and that's
1: that's where I think Smith excels, is that he utilizes that kind of alien sensation. It's, like you, it's a very, either. very – it's a very weird place to be because it's – especially for an American. When you're looking around and everything, and it can be very disorienting. Now, obviously, she lives in London. She's familiar with it. But even – but when there's no trains running and there's nobody around and it is dead fucking quiet, it can be very, very creepy because sound plays weird. Visuals are weird. The colors are all very, very stark. So you have the interior of the uh, terminal is pretty much white. You have the train itself is silver. Then you have the blackness of the tunnels around you. Then the different areas that they're moving you in through. The colors are all very simplistic to convey whatever is going on in that particular scene. Whether it's a harsh, sickly green. Or it's a, a kind of like gruesome blue. Or whatever. You have that filter to convey different areas. Or they like kind of like gross, yeah, infectious yellow. So he uses these, these very simple tactics to convey very simple ideas throughout. And the importance of that is that you don't have the money to tell because ostensibly shooting people's dialogue takes time and it is very risky because if people can't get their lines down or if you don't have the money to ensure that you get these things in one or two takes if you need multiple takes or if you or things are going like like you're in a subway station you're going to get random sounds sound is very very important in these things you have to be able to convey the environments effectively for your audience so you can't risk Shooting people's dialogue and having to do reshoot and reshoot and reshoot, which all costs money. So the importance is to show, don't tell. Less is more in these situations. Convey the terror through the blacks, the blues, the yellows, the greens. Convey it through the shadows, through the sparse use of light convey it through what you see on screen in your set production, in your art department, instead of trying to exposit your way through the entire thing. There is no explanation for where this thing came from. There is no explanation as to why there's a doctor's office or a surgical theater in the subway. We don't know. We know that there were experiments going on, very weird stuff that was happening. Listen, we have like dead babies in, in formaldehyde jars. All of that is left to the imagination something horrible was going on here this is the last thing that i guess this is the result of this terrible thing and now people are dying and they're getting eaten by this monster who is for some reason capturing people throwing them into like tanks or throwing them into like these cages in the sewer and holding them there until they die we don't know why but that's also kind of plays to it because our imaginations do the work for us trying to put the pieces together as to why this works this is how you shoot on low budget this is how you make smart use of your environments smart use of your actors and smart use of your camera when you don't have a lot to really play with you got to shoot really evocative stuff very very simply plato says terrible line for the internet to come back on dead babies in jars <laughs> 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 while the youngster walks by sorry about that so uh, sarcasm says i love midnight meat train it turned me on to books of blood Yeah, and, and midnight meat train they do the exact same thing they're very very sparse I mean, if you watch if you look all the scenes in the city ...are very blanched out. All the colors are muted. But you get down into the subway... ...you have the stark silver of the train. You've got the red of the blood. You've got the black of the shadows. You've got everything has its own conveyance. From inside the apartment... ...to down there in the final layer... ...of what's going on. Where everything is under these reddish rusty hues. I love how you do that. It's how you convey that and you save money doing that. So as a filmmaker, remember, keep that in mind... ...is that the color that you convey can be as expository as any amount of dialogue that you could possibly put in there. And I thought it was a smart use of his budget so we could maximize it. Obviously, you have a hideous monster. That takes time, makeup, hours in the makeup chair to really, because he was full body, you know? <laughs> and so to convey that appropriately, that takes time. That's all. That's a very expensive process. That money's going there. You gotta save it somewhere
0: else. Well, even beyond resource talking. filmmaking, like, The way they he selected the sets for this is absolutely amazing because the one that really stuck out to me was the archive with all the boxes, files. You know nobody made that. You could say here and there, maybe they made this room or that room, but that thing is like a football field long at a minimum running down, and it's fully filing boxes. And then we talked a little bit about the difference between like New York subway stations and London, So, and I really got, gave some thought to it, and it's, we talked about how enclosed it feels, but the ones in New York, if you think about it, they're done in a rectangular sort of shape, where you've got, most of them have, like, a climbing brick wall to a corner, and then a straight ceiling. The tube, they've got, it is arched, like a Quonset hut for the most part, Mm -hmm. and then they've got the tiles that line, and those tiles have two effects. One, the arch helps conduct sound more um two the tiles don't they reverberate more than concrete does so any noise down there like if there's a hustle and bustle of people it's destructive noise like they cancel each other out to a degree but when there's just a couple people it bangs all around those stations um and then the whiteness of it so like you see all this this software now that has night mode and it doesn't just you know it's not there just to look cool it's easier on your eyes having a black background With a white foreground they survey that's why you'll see a lot of materials now a lot of apps if they decide to do white background they do off-white so it's not as harsh so whatever light you shoot out to hit the white on those tiles is just getting intensified so like you said the you know the greenish hues stuff like that gets just pushed to the max and then if you know you can actually put a little more of the story together if you take a couple of clues and you think about the background of London, uh, London just underground, not just the subway system, but the underground, East Underground itself, is World War II. They put a ton of stuff underground. That's where a lot of the headquarters were. That's where a lot of Winston Churchill spent his time was underground because they were getting bombed by the Germans. So I think that what they are saying is because I would think it was just a single lone scientist given the photographs and stuff. But the fact that he had numerous babies as patients and just this one surviving tells me that this was government funded. And they abandoned it. The one door opens a solid concrete, and that's a government operation right there. Concrete. Yeah, they bricked
1: it all. Yeah, completely filled
0: yeah, yeah. So I think this was a government operation abandoned and then the way he poses with a kid, unless the guy destroyed Craig was his name. Um if unless he destroyed the other photographs i'm thinking that maybe his son maybe he did this but like you said none of that is spelled out none of that is written like the only thing from what i just told you that's written is his name craig everything else is photos visual clues stuff like that so it's he yeah he did a wonderful job you've got knowing a little bit of history helps with that but you can put that all together by what's going on there first it makes no damn sense i still don't know what's up with the people cages but <laughs> yeah that, was, that
1: was, the audience was like but obviously you know this thing that doesn't really talk or or mimics what other people are saying because it's just because yeah. the only time it talks is it repeats the lines of one of its other victims and mm-hmm. it never ever speaks for itself which is odd and then of course like screeches like a, a i don't know like a bat in the dark it's like a like a bat yeah it's, it's very odd <laughs> I would say played very effectively by actor um, – by character actor Sean Harris, who I think a lot of people will remember from uh, – he was in Prometheus. He played the um, he played the dude with the facial tattoos who winds up getting mutated, uh, uh, Fifield, and in, uh, turns into the monster they wind up – winds up killing a bunch of people and gets set on fire. So he played Fifield in Prometheus, but he was also in uh, a couple of Mission Impossible films, and uh, he did a really fantastic uh, indie film called Possum. Which was really, really scary. Oh, God, that yeah, was that a fucked up movie. Yes, a haunting film. So he was fantastic in that, and you know, I think he was also in the Borgias as a as an assassin. So he is a fantastic character actor. Does some great monster work in this one as the twisted and mutated uh, whatever the fuck he is. I'm, I'm not I'm not ostensibly sure. No, not not uh, terribly sure what this fucker is. But and there might be some cannibals involved. Not sure, but. Definitely into hacking people up, and I know that. And I felt that what they were trying to convey was intriguing. I thought that the the surgical scene, the 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 pantomiming surgical scene with the with the uh, with the drug addict chick, was a little. I thought just essentially just thrown in there for shits and was Like oh, let's do a graphic scene where we, but they don't show anything. They don't really show anything. Well, we just get the the motions of it, so to kind of fill in the gaps in our imagination. Hey, McKinnon Mitchell, good to see you. This sounds like a good movie. McKenna?
0: I'm Well, I was gonna say, and then I'll kick it over to Alex, and then he has something to say. Even that scene, pay attention, it tells something because so what he does beforehand is a direct mimic of what he would see people doing surgery Mm -hmm. once more often than that. But then after the gas, what he does to her is clearly not surgical in nature. I mean, at all, he just takes that thing and goes like straight for the throat the wrong way around so it tells it tells me that he knows what they do before the gas but after the gas it's his guess it's up to his imagination so it's either his psychopathy playing out or it's something he feels like has happened to him that he's been butchered and he's playing it out but even that kind of told me something but uh what were you saying
2: kind of i mean it's just i was going to touch on the the whole plot it's- it had the potential and it's a good movie. Like it's not, it's not a terrible movie, but the, the plot is so thin and you're you're asking these questions, these like, you know, why is the doctor's office down here? Like they they could have played more into the actual story. Like there's there was something there and they just, it was like, oh, there's a picture, we know his name. There was obviously some bad stuff. Like make it make it make more sense. I understand that they had to be like, this is why he's the way that he is. And this is how he got here but they don't, yeah. they don't touch more than that. Like, His name's Craig. Well, and they him, now he's killing people. Go <laughs> ahead, like, Craig. They could have
0: <laughs> outlined it earlier, I think. If they started doing it earlier, because that too was the one thing I think it really was missing for me is modulating the tension because I know they're trying to do this constant run, 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 always in danger, never know when he's there and stuff, but you have to modulate tension in a plot. Um, you've got to have the periodic breaks or otherwise it just burns out. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's probably going to die. What the hell ever. Um, and I think they could have taken, like you said, they could have gone in and kind of those down gaps and outline more of the plot.
1: That may have been, I I would like to chalk it up as a hindrance of budget, you know, you have so much you got to work with, and you you shooting on location is always really expensive and difficult. So you try to convey what you can, um, and I think this one comes through in the production quality and in the monster in and of itself. Um, sometimes you got to let the audience kind of fill in the gaps. I think the the art department did really really well. There were some other things I think they could have that could have been conveyed. I think, but then again, I'm kind of glad they didn't. They could have touched on things like maybe this was an old Nazi experiment, maybe this was like the the, the tool experimenting with the human, you know, with human. Well, I was experimenting with human genetics, trying to you know make the perfect killer. Maybe this was the the English trying to do this to find some perfect weapon they could utilize against the Nazis. I don't. We don't know. We just know that there was something going on here, and they kind of allude to it in the beginning of the film, uh, in the uh, the junkies exposition when Jimmy is talking about how oh yeah, there's like 400 miles of track down here, and that doesn't even that that they use. It doesn't include all the stuff that they've long since abandoned that they just don't touch. It's similar to kind of like New York. Whereas in in New York, when they were building up the city, um, at the you know, when the when the the metropolitan area was starting to form, they just kept building on top of itself. So they built like originally old school stuff, and then when that started to kind of fall into disrepair, they just built on top of it and on top of it, which is why it just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Which they uh, we they talk about in Ghostbusters two, if you remember that sequence where you can you just keep going down, down, down. The deeper that they built in order to build these uh, these things, so I found it intriguing, and I like filling. The gap. I'm kind of glad they didn't because they could have just like stuck it on there. It was like, boom! This is what it is. Ha ha! Explanation. It takes kind of some of the some of the mystery is good, and uh, some of the ambiguity is good. Like, what the hell was going on here? And I like that we kind of fill in the gaps. It's it's somewhat cheap. I understand that it's a cheap, it's, you know, kind of a cheap gimmick, but it works when you don't really have the money to go much further than this. Otherwise, not a bad film. Uh, it's kind of by the numbers, but done smartly and done well. And of course, was the first film from Christopher Smith. His filmography speaks for itself. I, his, I think his best film so far is Triangle with Melissa George. Shot on the uh, about the the time looping one. Shot on the on the on the ship. That one was brilliantly done, and that's what you want to work to. That's where you want to get to. You show what you can do with very very little, and then eventually you'll be able to get the lot to, to do something really amazing. So, but given this. This whole film, Creep, was shot down in the London Underground, ostensibly the subway. I want to know what your favorite or what you think is the best subway horror, ones that take place underground, whether it's the London Underground or it's, you know, we have mentions of many uh, subways, uh, uh, you know, throughout the world. What is the best subway horror, subway set horror film, uh, in your opinion? Let us know in the live chat or, of course, down in the uh, comments below or a in horror at gmail.com. My personal favorite. Of, like, scary subway horror stuff, uh, mimic. I loved it because I, I'm not a fan of cockroaches and big, giant, big, giant bugs down in the sewers is really scary to me. So, yeah, that's
2: terrifying. <laughs> but yeah, that's yeah. And it's Delta. Yeah, I mean, come on. So,
0: I'm with Nocturnalux Marabito just because conceptually, like, it takes it to. You're talking about stuff built on top of stuff built on top of stuff. Like, it takes it to the max where all the shit we built intersects with cave systems that lead into basically, oh, I would call them fantastical realms. Except the shit that comes out of it is evil. Um, so it's that's really interesting to me. It's kind of along the li- same lines as in the book it, where it explains more of where everything underground eventually leads into its lair and everything. Ah.
1: So, nocturnal luck said, "Marabito, uh, Rodella's name, mimic, Angel Rivera, mimic, Raven Darkstar with split second. Ooh, got some rucker oh, Howard yeah. love. Fuck yeah, we need hell guns. yeah,
0: bigger damn guns." <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love how I, I love a movie, especially a horror action film, where the protagonist subsists on like chocolate and coffee. coffee. Like that's all he's got. <laughs> it's just like that's all he needs, and, he, and he's ready to go. Uh, Sarcasm brings a train to Busan. Tony Regime says American Werewolf in London has a great subway scene. It absolutely does. It was a good moment. Does. Uh, Travis Brown says subway, fast food. Agreed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Ooh, McKinnon Mitchell brings up, does it have to be entirely subway? Because Cloverfield has a fantastic subway sequence. And it does. It actually, it really, really does. Ooh, Sir Littlewell brings up Chud. Cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers. Good stuff. Trained to Busan. Yeah, I love Mimic. Midnight Me Train for Genova twenty eight. Fucking A. Uh Josh Lee says, good to know JL would not do well in the Temple of Doom. I am not a bug fan. No. It does not sound Oh, no, sorry. Those do not sound like fortune cookies at all. Those are not fortune cookies.
2: <laughs> Meanwhile, I've got a little a little jumping spider that has moved onto my computer screen because it's warm. And he's been there the whole he's been there the whole live stream.
0: So. Alex has a friend. <laughs> I, have a
2: t-
1: I, I have a desk lamp that is a very intricate dragon. I can't really show it. I, I'll show it like with, with, with where my camera is. But it was a Christmas present. It's this very intricate dragon lamp with all these nooks and cranes. I have a tiny little jumping spider that has hooked up in there. And it just kind of like runs around hiding in all the little places. And I, I, I just can't I can't bear to get rid of him because he's adorable. So, But uh, Joshua says, it seems like the new Scream movie will be in the subway. I think that there will be considering Scream 6 uh will be taking place in New York. And of course the mm-hmm. uh the teaser trailer just came out for that uh today. So if you haven't had a chance to check that out, go and check that go and see that. What now, about Jason Spre-
2: takes Manhattan. Is that a is that a subway there's a subway sequence. There. there is
1: a subway sequence in Jason takes Manhattan. I love what he was I, I, it, Jason as takes goofy Vancouver. As, movie, <laughs> as goofy as that movie is, I loved him wreckage <laughs> shop through the city just like especially there's a beautiful sequence where he busts into the diner and then the cook, like the chef. Why 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 is the cook always some big meat fucking meathead? Comes around and is like, hey, pal, and then he gets his ass whooped. But that dude was a stunt man who had, I think, had previously played Jason as well, which I thought was amazing. So, but it was a uh, uh, brilliant stuff in there. But definitely let us know down in the comments below or a week in horror at gmail.com, your favorite subway horror. All right, Aaron, bring us home, man. We're going back.
0: All right, <laughs> all, all the way. Get there from December 23rd, 19th Tarantula or Tarantula, whichever way they, they list it <laughs> <laughs>
1: with an exclamation point. Let's check out this trailer Tarantula. Oh, I mean Tarantula. Sorry,
0: <laughs>
1: Tarantino. Oh, I mean, tar- <laughs> oh. Shit, <tarantula. laughs>
0: So, what we have here is a horror, life, horse sci-fi creature feature about a tarantula that is scientifically and mutated to enormous size before escaping its confines to uh, roam the countryside, destroying and devouring like a drunken redneck. Uh, <laughs> 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 the one thing I would like to point out on here is they take and they talk constantly about um, how's it pronounced acromeglia. You know, the deforming disorder, the pituitary gland, right, ac- Rondo ac- Hatton. Acro-
1: acromegaly. Yeah, I think it's,
0: yeah, acromegaly. Yeah. yeah. It's a uh, Rondo Hatton actually had that, the one that we talked about in, uh, what is it, uh, Jungle Prisoner, or I can't remember the name of it now. Oh, the
1: Jungle, ca- jungle Captive.
0: Jungle Captive. Yeah. yeah. It had the had two girl and everything. He he had acromegaly, and that's how he got most of his parts. Which he was remarkable for. His size and then like the boldness of his features, so I found that interesting that it took a uh, kind of center stage for a while on this one.
1: Okay, so I so uh, particularly I I dig this one and there's some interesting. So people brought up in some interesting stuff in the live chat here, and I want to get to those because uh so. Joshua Lee brings up. So yes, yes. It is and this this film came out in 1955. This was, you know, not even a decade after or this is a little over a decade after the atomic bombs were dropped. And atomic energy was the scary thing. It was like, ooh, nuclear power. And then we saw the destructive capabilities of it. And that informed like a whole you know a whole subgenre of monster movies. So big insects, big animals big kaiju you know japan jumped on it with uh with godzilla and so yeah it, it influenced an entire realm of filmmaking but the interesting thing about this one and i saw some people were kind of like it's it's an mst3k flick it it is it is kind of one of the movies that they would they would do but what's interesting is that this one was in my opinion tarantula is actually really really good as far as a number of things and first and foremost joshua lee brings up Classic 50s flick... Atomic energy scary... Therefore it's bad... The interesting thing about Tarantula... Even though... Kind of coming on the heels of them... Which is essentially the thing, the same thing... Uh, giant ants... Instead of a giant spider... But the cool thing about this one... giant, you know, the, the giant Tarantula... Was that... This one is not about... Atomic energy being scary... This is about... Atomic energy being... Kind of outside of... Like outside the realm of our control... How our eyes are kind of bigger... Than our stomachs... And how utilizing... The new technology... We can solve a lot of really great problems, but it's really, really dangerous, and if it gets out of control, they can result in uh, disaster things, because the whole thing, there is, because uh, usually you get like an evil corporation, or the evil government, or the mad scientist in, in, the, in the role of the person who's abusing these things. Not in this one. In this one, you've got the scientist who's trying to solve the, the uh, overpopulation problem by ensuring that there's enough food for everybody to go around. And what's really funny is in 1955, they did population projections in the film. It's like what the population would be in 1975, what it will be in the year 2000. They were so wrong. <laughs> they way undercut where we actually were. Because I think he said in the year 2000, there will be like 3.6 billion people. It's like, no, man, there was like 6.2. So it got wildly out of control. But. The problem that is there and is legitimate, even in 1955, they were talking about overpopulation being an issue. Nuclear power could be the way we do that by, by you know speeding up animals' maturity, getting them to a massive size, and then being able to utilize them for food, uh, for food sources because there's going to be too many people on the planet. There's no real bad guy in this movie. All it is is just the circumstances of the situation got out of their control and resulted in disaster. It's essentially what it is. So, yes, it's our relationship with science and what we can do with that science, but ultimately, not really great. I think They flipped this, they kind of flipped the genre script in this and try to tell something uh, in a new way, which I thought was really good. And as McKenna Mitchell puts out, or sorry, did, I didn't mean to say you put out, like you put it in, in the live chat, nope. not going to lie, despite this era's limit- limitations, these special effects look really good, or look pretty good, all things considered, <clears throat> and they were. I thought this one was Really, really smartly done, because uh, using the mat the mat techniques they had, making small things look giant or giant things look small, like they did with uh, the uh, uh, the Incredible Shrinking Man. But I really, really enjoyed the effects of this one, which were top notch for 1955 for a fucking you know drive-in movie. You know that these things were really well done.
2: It was perceived very well. I think it was number four on the box office list in December, the year it came out. I think it grossed like one point one million or something. I think that was the number one point one million. Yeah, right. Yeah, so I mean, like it wasn't. What that
0: is for inflation?
2: The word, yeah, that's about six billion dollars today. No, um, but but yeah, no, it was perceived well. It was done well, and it was it was like yeah, it was a driving movie. (laughs) The effects were so cool with the uh, with the bombs, and then the jet squadron Clint Eastwood jet squadron leader uh, at the end. Yeah, was all great. That was all good.
0: Well, it was all of that because we've talked about it before. It's a predecessor of Chroma Key. but the movie we the movie we talked about it in before. Um, God, I can't remember anything What is was the end of the world.
1: Oh, beginning of the end.
0: Beginning with the of giant The, end. Gra- with the they, beginning um, of the
1: end with the giant grasshoppers. That's right.
0: Yeah, they stuck relatively simple with that because this. The, so with Chroma Key, I mean, you, it's it's CGI. It's doing the work for you. But back in the day, you had a few different ways you could do this, and uh, the easiest is when you're doing a large animal in the background because you can kind of set the plane on the view, and then you shoot the animal you take, and you cut out the sky along the plane, and then you drop it in the background and straight cut. And you do have to cut that frame by frame most of the time, from what I understand. But I mean, you're. Just, Just cut at the horizon and drop it in, or depending on how it's filmed, it may be easier. But in this one, they went the extra mile because even doing just an overlay where, like, it's walking out of the lab, the animal's in the foreground, it's over everything else, if it's shot and lit properly, you've got the spider in the middle of what is effectively a transparent uh frame on the film that can be overlaid on another and it's you know it's not super hard but when it like when it comes over the rock and you're transitioning from background to foreground those are hand cut frames where they've gone through and each single frame figure out where that spider's going to be and then cut out the rock around the rock and around it to match them to each other so that it's coming from behind and suddenly part of it's over part of it's behind and it's god it takes so much work like Right. I would be screaming mad after a day of that.
1: <laughs> I thought the 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 two brilliant shots that you know were really really intensive were <clears throat> the uh, the the spider moving across the horizon and knocking down the telephone pole, which essentially cuts the town off from all <laughs> outside communication. Which was I thought it was like do do you know, like and knocks it down. But the big one, the big climactic shot when the spider when the big ass tarantula is in the middle of the road, and they have all the explosions going together. So they're Setting off a giant explosion in the middle of the road, the giant spider is there, and it's the explosion goes off, and it obscures our our vision, our obscures our uh, our sight of the spider. But then the spider moves through the cloud, further into the foreground. As we realize the the explosives, they do nothing, and I loved this sequence, um, and I thought it was re- just seamlessly uh, put together. So they did some really smart stuff here and uh, joshua lee said so week can horror what did this movie do that beginning of the end got wrong it uses spider and not grasshoppers <laughs> <laughs> is the big thing because grass while beginning of the end was really smart and did some really smart stuff having a monster go like this like horizontal across the screen which is this, which we saw a lot of Beginning of the end was really really good and also had it coming at the screen from the on the vertical axis. So you've got like do-to-do do, do across the screen and the army's fighting. That's pretty easy to do. But when you try when you turn it so that the uh, grasshopper's coming up over the hill towards the camera, I thought was really, really smart. So they did some good stuff there. They also did some bad stuff. Like, that's very obviously a when they show the grasshoppers crawling up the side of the building it's like you can tell oh that's very obviously a cutout and they just have grasshoppers crawling up the cutout and I was like okay I, I get what you're trying to do there but yeah first and foremost you know they use grasshoppers they were giant grasshoppers instead of uh instead of a spider so the spider in and of itself is really especially a giant black tarantula traipsing across the uh, the countryside eating horses and cattle and people and you know that was so nasty when he puts the when he's like hmm what is this you know, it doesn't smell like anything. Mm. Oh, it tastes weird. You know, it's like, why are you putting it in your mouth, man? That's true science right there. That is true blue science. Um, and I also dug that, uh, the film also did, uh, did what, uh, beginning of the end did well, was that the female character was not dismissed in this, which I really, really liked that they didn't just shit all over her. And she just wasn't there to be, uh, you know, for them to be all misogynistic and justify Like, she knew what she was doing, and she had a great amount of respect from the protagonist, um, which I really, really liked. So that's – well-written, well-shot, very, very well done big monster movie, which I think uh, doesn't get a lot of uh, – doesn't get the credit it deserves for what you said, what you brought up, Aaron, the intensive process it takes to bring these things, to bring these shots to life. So
2: That's uh, – I had seen somebody had mentioned The Incredible Shrinking Man because there was a, a spider in that. Fun fact time: That was the spider from *Tarantula*.
1: The same, the oh, Tony yeah. yeah. regime.
2: So yeah, he said something. Uh, he mentioned the, the Incredible Shrinking Man, and so there's a, a spider scene in that movie, and it's actually the same spider as the spider from.
1: Oh, Tarantula. cool! I know yeah. it was the same. It was the same director, wasn't it? Uh, Who basically?
2: Yeah.
1: He, he, I'm pretty sure it was the same. It was uh, directed by Jack Arnold, and. <clears throat> The Incredible Shrinking Man. He did The Incredible Shrinking Man two years okay. later because yeah. he utilized the same technique, the mat technique, in order to convey the giant spider that he did to convey the little man to do to basically do the reverse. So, you know, to, to get the same effect. And yes, the uh, the, the big tarantula sequence uh, in that one as well. Really, really good. I mean, smart stuff, and I like the way that they utilized it. Um, oh, Sir Gavin said, Alex, I already said that. <clears throat> LOL.
2: Oh, did you? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, Rave is Night of the Lepus. Absolutely, yep. There you go. And of course, there was a lot of forced perspective in Night of the Lepus as well. Um, someone said, oh, Angel Rivera brought up 1.1 million in 1955 is worth 12.2 million today. Is how much that would have been. Res-
0: respectable.
1: Very respectable, yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, uh, just circling back really quickly we were talking about earlier about being an accident and everything the various viewpoints we've talked about that before too um about moving from you know trusting the government to not trusting it going through vietnam and such but um godzilla is actually amazing when you look at any of that stuff because it has had the series had such a long lifespan um the, in japan it started out it was after the beginning the beginning after around the bikini atoll incident where we set off an h-bomb it went much larger than we thought it was going to and it poisoned japanese fishermen um and that was obviously national news there so um at first godzilla is evil later on as they started moving into you know the fission reactors and stuff using nuclear power plants he becomes friendly everything but then recently with fukushima occurring he's on the bad side again so it's the seemingly silly movies are actually a really good hint into what is going on within a society as to how it regards certain things like nuclear power or how they feel about their government things like that they're just when you stop and you actually take a second look there's a lot to read into these movies because they've got to play to people's interests and just their general feeling or, you know, they're dead at the box office.
1: Right.
2: That's a fair point. <laughs> so
1: Nocturnal, <laughs> Nocturnal <laughs> Lux says, I'd let giant kittens... Tra- I'd like. Uh, there was a talk about radioactive giant kittens or like uh, giant radioactive kittens from Ordinary Jeff and Nocturnal Lux said, I'd let giant kittens trample me to death. Well, you don't need to let giant kittens do If, if you don't have any giant kittens, go and watch the movie uh, Deadly Eyes. Where you can see someone uh, get um, swarmed by dachshunds in rat costumes because it's absolutely the most adorable thing you'll ever see in your life. For a horror film, it's just great because he falls on the ground and all the little dogs have the rat costumes on and they all just like jump all over And He's like he's trying to act all scared, like "Oh no, there's rats eating me!" and it's just the it's the cutest thing you've ever seen in your life because you can see the little tails are wagging and it's just
0: beautiful. It was, uh, so in much reality. <laughs> It would be horrifying. They would bat you around like they do a mouse. You'd be slamming against buildings and cars, pick up and just toss down the street, half broken, just like, let me die.
1: <laughs> uh, let me see. Uh, Raven Doctor asked, what was the name of the spider movie that Shatner did? That was Kingdom of the Spiders that also had tarantulas in it, but uh, it's much smaller. There were just lots and lots and lots of them. And then the, the infamous waking up scene the next morning and the whole town is like covered in webs. So, but yeah, that was a uh, Kingdom of the Spiders with William Shatner and Nocturnal Lux. Uh, oh, Nocturnal name is Roar. People got hurt by lions. Heard about that. And then Nocturnal Lux said, "There's a Korean movie with cats mauling a dude sadly. It's not well accomplished." <laughs> so this one, I really really enjoyed. I dug this one as an entry in the the kind of like 1950s giant monster um, kind of like that that field. Think this one was really really well done. It kind of got swamped a little bit because there were so many being made at the time one thing i thought was really really cool was how the uh it was at the forefront of the filming technology uh at the time it kind of like revolutionized how to utilize matte techniques in order to convey small things as large and uh which was then done in In Incredible incredible shrinking man which made large things small so i i dug how they did it and um they didn't fall into some of the traps that or the some of the easy things you could do back then like some of the narrative traps it was a smartly done story it kind of flipped the, sh- uh, the script a little bit which is why um i think this one uh is kind of special in a way because it doesn't it tries to break the formula a little bit doesn't do it terribly well but it's still a decent film and i love how it wraps up at the end bam spider gets blow yo they 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 hit they hit it with napalm so they yeah. got the melting spider in the background and then it's like and then it's done credits all good to go I miss that. I always it, enjoyed that it Was see a nineteen fifties film and it was like, ah, oh, it's dead. Credits.
2: Don't have, no denouement, we don't do need one. one.
0: <laughs> End up like the we damn well clean up when they blew it up at that beach. <laughs> 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 All right.
2: And then of course being people they look at it like, "What well, can we eat it?
0: Yeah. All right, so question we have for you. What is the best or what is your favorite giant animal horror movie? I'm always going for either the Night of the Lepus or uh, the uh, Attack of the Shrews, I believe it is. uh, uh Killer Shrews? Mm-hmm. Killer Shrews, yeah. The dog costume just like... Uh... <laughs>
1: <laughs> Killer Shrews is hilarious. Oh, my absolute favorite. Oh, favorite giant horror. Giant animal horror. Um, <laughs> McKenna Mitch said, Mighty Joe Young. Fight me. <laughs> and that's true. Uh, Plotter brings up that had to do... Uh, that; They had to do it. All horror films had to have a happy ending with a protagonist win. Agreed.
0: Yeah, Hayes Code.
1: So, I'm going to have to agree with sarcasm. Food of the Gods is up there. I really enjoyed Food of the Gods. Uh, I thought that was really, uh, really well done. Um, so Little brings up Giant Leeches. Joshua Lee, beginning at the end. Um, Nocturnal Lux, Pulgasari. Actually, oh, Angel Rivera, Mimic, since they technically are giant cockroaches. or Giant nugs? I think you meant bugs. Nugs. <laughs> but <he knows>. giant, <laughs> giant nugs. Giant nugs. Uh, Tony Regime says Deadly Spawn, going by the last five minutes. Definitely lots of good oh, ones in there.
0: A rodent, no last name, Suicide Squad, Giant Starfish. I don't think that counts as a giant animal because it's an intergalactic starfish. This is true. I think that's more a Lovecraftian horror.
1: <laughs> All right. So definitely let us know in the comments below or at WeekendOrderGmo.com your favorite or the best, what you think is the best giant animal horror. Alex, it's trivia time, baby.
2: Hell yeah. <laughs> All
1: right. Uh, so we've got another mystery item to give away for tonight's trivia question. So, get those Google fingers, flex those Google fingers, get them ready. Um, Alex got a trivia question tonight. So, if someone got the live chat up, do I need to pull it up? I've got I've it up. We ask well, that every week. We probably should just up, have baby. it pulled up anyway. Yeah, he's always got it Generally up. Pulled up. Yeah. Oh, Plothole said Harry and the Hendersons.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't ignore your great answer. All right, John, so... let go a monster. <laughs> <laughs> John, look, there's a giant animal. Love it. All right, so a nice trivia question. The first one to get the correct answer in the live chat will win a mystery item from the weekend horror store. So, Alex, whenever you're ready, hit him with the question.
2: The location where *Tranquilo* was filmed would also be future, <laughs> future shooting I'm location. I'm sorry,
1: because <laughs> it has the exclamation point. That's that's.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, you messed it up. I no, fucked it up. Go ahead. <laughs>
1: fucked it up. Sorry. Go ahead, and re-read. The Location
2: where Trangela was filmed would also be the future shooting location of what West Craven horror film? So one more time. The location where Tranchula was filmed would also be the future shooting location of what West Craven horror film?
1: All right. <clears throat> First correct answer in the live chat gets a mystery item uh, shipped to them from the Weekend Horror Store so mckinnon mitchell said apple valley so let me actually uh, point, uh so the location where tarantula was filmed would also be the future shooting location for what west craven horror film and it looks like angel rivera's got it yep. with the hills have eyes <clears throat> this is true so oh, yeah. uh, i know that mckinnon mitchell uh, said apple valley california josh lee said the mojave desert um it was like the uh, the area where they shot that um would be the future shooting location for the hills have eyes by west craven so, yes, uh, congratulations to Angel Rivera. Um, unfortunately, Tony Regime said, no, it was not Nightmare on Elm Street. But, yeah, the hills have eyes. So, Angel Rivera picked that up. Let me write that down. Angel Rivera gets a mystery prize from the Weekend Horror Store.
2: Surprise, Good. it's Jail's beard in a box. It's candle in shape my the- penis.
1: <laughs> congratulations, Angel Rivera. Well done. And we'll get that printed and shipped out to you ASAP. All right, so that will bring another episode of Week in Horror to a close. Thank you all so much for joining us. We truly hope you enjoyed the show tonight. Join us next week when we say goodbye to 2022, where they look back at Australian 80s horror, Allison's Birthday, the techno horror of Making Contact. Johnny wants so badly to talk about that one. Alien Mutation Terror in Dark Universe, and the zombie b horror, Night of a Thousand Screams. For more horror fun, be sure to follow us on all the socials for The Daily Splatter, your daily horror film recommendation. Remember, we are constantly being stalked by that cruelest of faceless slashers algorithm, and you can help us defeat it by dropping a comment, liking, subscribing, and smashing that notification bell like a true third act final girl. Joshua Olson does all the amazing artwork for our show, and his designs are incredible. Hit his store up at www.badsamurai.store. A massive shout out to all of our amazing patrons who continue to help us make Week in Horror the incredible success that it has become. You see their names down there below in the banner? Those are the people who help us do this. If you would like to and are able to support our production, you can too by joining and enjoying the tasty benefits of one of our many, many Patreon tiers. But if Patreon is not your favorite stocking method, you can always support us directly through our PayPal. Links to all of this, including our Discord community where you can hang out with us, are in the description below. And remember, the goal here at Weekend Horror is global horror domination. We can't do it without you, our amazing audience, so pretty pleased with the hopes and dreams of all indie horror lovers everywhere, go share the absolute fuck out of our little show. Thank you all for, uh, <clears throat> sorry, thank you all for being the greatest audience a podcast could possibly have. I am JL.
0: I'm not the regular fat guy. <laughs>
1: And I'm (laughs) Alex. We will see you all next week. And as always, stay scared.